episode of Moralia Python Radio tonight, episode 265. We're talking retics with Josh Ortiz. Um, I guess we first met Josh when we went out to Nerd uh, with Matt, and uh, we got to see what was going on there. They have some amazing retics. Uh, it was uh, a pretty pretty cool experience, and um, you know uh, I, I've seen Josh at a couple shows, and uh, uh, I thought it would be cool to get him on and uh, talk retics, see what he's got going on. Um, so, <laughs> Owen, are you have you ever yes. been wanting to get into retics? Never. I mean Never. that's that's that well. Let me put it this way: If I, I, they, I've been tempted to uh, get looking at them and going like, they, they, "Hey, they're really, you know, they're really pretty animals," and man, that one's impressive, and hey, that one's cool. I mean, I think you and Matt are probably the ones who kind of push me down that road. And then, of course, uh, uh, I'm having Amanda vend with me at Hamburg and stuff like that. She kind of got all the retics too. So, um, but I, I couldn't. The size and everything else, I don't think I'd be set up for it, I guess, because my rooms have always been smaller. So, yeah, no. <laughs> I'll, play with, I'll play with yours because then I leave and they stay with you. So, Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's always been the uh, prettiest button. I mean, as far as, you know, just natural look of a retic is hard to uh to beat um in the Python world, in my opinion. But uh, uh so it should be cool. We should uh we should be uh should be chatting all about them and um you know whether or not uh it's the right thing for you. I think sometimes there's a lot of misconceptions about retics. Um, you know, uh, I remember, you know, when I was a kid and my dad got retics in uh, he was dealing with was probably wild caught stuff, and man, they were nasty as hell. See that yeah. much anymore uh, these days? I think they're pretty chill, and uh, it seems that the uh, the uh, you know captive uh, breeding has sort of uh, mellowed out a bit, I guess. But uh, we'll, we'll get uh, Justice's uh, take. But what's that? What else is going on with you? Well, what's going on with me is we're just kind of trying to get everything in order. Um, it's never too early to start planning for Tinley Park. So trying to yes. figure out what I might need, what I should get, um, if I want to update things. I already pegged that I need to get new um, lights because every time you and I split a table, your lights make your displays look um, fantastic, and then I look like a dark corner, and uh, and that's that's no good. So um, <laughs> I already said I'm getting new lights, and then uh, everything else is just trying to figure out what animals are coming with me. I actually had to reach out to a few other breeders that uh, live nearby that have excess animals because I don't have that many uh, I don't have that many babies left. So I'm going to be trying to bring a few other animals with me to uh, make sure that we have at least a full table, which uh, if you're going to Tinley Park, you better have, you better be coming with a full table. So. Really? Yeah. Apparently. My- it absolutely sucks. Um, you sound like you're underwater. I assumed your wife was just drowning you and this was going to be our final <laughs> moment. That's, 
uh, why I kept talking like this. So, you know, figured you'd die on uh, air. Change the headsets because you uh, probably tried doing the wireless one again, didn't you? No, no, no. It's, I don't know. Maybe there's something going on with Blog Talk again. Um, uh, um, Blog Talk. <laughs> it's a show that we're excited about. Of course, Blog Talk's not going to work. <laughs> Damn it. So, I'm sure we'll I... Hold on. around. Let me, Go ahead. Let me... We'll wait. Sorry. I'm going to let you take over. What the hell am I going to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here we go. <laughs> uh, God. Anyway, if you are trying to make out your trip to Tinley Park, we suggest everybody try to make it out. Chicago, it's going to be a hell of a good time, um, especially get to see a lot of different animals, meet a lot of people. If you are going to Tinley Park and you are listening to the show right now on live, please go ahead and jump into the chat. Let us know you're coming, just so we know who to look for, um, who to avoid, uh, who might be coming to kill us. We don't know who's how you people feel about us anymore. Um, but that would be exciting to meet everybody there. I hear all drinks are going to be on Eric. I'm merely saying this because he cannot stop me. And uh, he's, I owe him one for last week when he muted me while he sent a message to my father. So, which brings me to the uh, next couple episodes. Uh, you guys are really going to want to tune in for the next few. Uh, we got Matt Mitola, I know, is coming on soon, if not next. And definitely going to have the five-year anniversary show which I keep hearing rumors is going to get worse and worse and worse for me. You all are probably going to enjoy the hell out of it, but I'm going to be the one that loses his little mind. So um, we'll see how that goes. But hopefully we can have the audio fixed by then. Otherwise, it's just going to be crackling and snapping and all kinds of absolute craziness. But, Today is a retic show. So I like retics. Like I told Eric, I would never own them because I don't feel I have the space for them. And of course, everybody's probably going to tell me different uh, today, especially with the dwarf retics going on and things like that. So we'll see how it goes. Um, I would say that if you are thinking about getting into retic, definitely do your research. Think about it maybe before jumping in and grabbing one at the closest reptile show near you. Uh, they are uh, and can be very large animals with um, very large expenses as it comes to caging, feed, heat, all that other kind of fun stuff. So it's one of those uh, things you just kind of got to worry about before you dive in, especially if you're a person who's been keeping smaller animals and things like that because you don't ever want to jump from, let's say, corn snakes immediately to something as large as a reticulated python without at least doing some research, talking to some people, and uh, figuring some stuff out. I mean, the good thing is is that, uh, you know, J- Josh working over at Nerd, when we met him, he's very knowledgeable about um, all the animals that they had over there, uh, and he did a great job kind of talking us through uh, what to expect, what to do, and they had a whole set of rules of how to deal with different types of retics and or different sizes. So it was a very knowledgeable guy and he would be one of the guys I would go to 
if you are thinking about getting into retics and just kind of, you know, pick his brain for a little bit and see what you can shake loose, maybe you can jump right into retics. So I, on the other hand, will stick with uh, um, carpet pythons. Anybody else who wants to get into the larger stuff can knock yourselves out. Of course, I said this, and uh, I have scrubs. So. <laughs> well, Eric says he's almost done getting the audio on his end fixed, which he better be, damn it. Um, and hopefully we'll get some more news from you guys uh, about how the – uh, Northwest Carpet Fest went. I know they raised a bunch of money. We were kind of distracted by Nick and Drag, so we didn't get the full yes. report from those guys yet. So you're Is that back. any better? And, and you're above water. Yes, you're good. Okay. Okay. Good. Good job. We're professional. But now you're super We do all low. our troubleshooting. What? Yeah, I've lost you. <laughs> I can't hear I'm you right barely. Here. Okay. All right. Well, talk louder. I'll scream if I have to. All right, so are you all caught up? We can. Oh man. Yeah, go ahead. Happen on these kind of shows. I swear to God. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I'm good if you want to roll, and if I and if you can't hear me or if there's a problem, I'll call back in. You're you you've got the soundboard. You you're the one who's got to be working correctly. I'm I'm meaningless, right? So okay. All right, well let's get Josh on here and let's get this going. Uh, hopefully he's got a good connection too. Let's see. We'll hey see. Josh, welcome to uh, Morelli Python Radio. Sorry for the uh, technical difficulties, but we run into them time to time. Um, but uh, glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. I'm glad you guys got it started out. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, it takes us a minute, but we get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, appreciate the invite. Sure. Uh, so, Josh, why don't you just kind of jump in and tell us, you know, what got you started in reptiles? Uh, sure. Sounds great. Um, I pretty much been doing reptiles my entire life. It was never like a specific age where, you know, some people say they started at, you know, such and such age. I pretty much had them my entire life. Uh, my family actually had a dedicated reptile room uh, while I was growing up. They actually had it before I was even born. And they raised, uh, you know, different types of lizard species from, you know, small lizards to large monitors. And then um, well, probably when I was around 12, I um, got my first snake after, you know, pleading for many, many years um, because my family mm-hmm. were a little bit apprehensive about snakes. They mostly had lizards. And then um, ever since then, so 20 years later, I have, you know, one of the larger collections in the Northeast in terms of private collections at least. Nice. So, I, yep. That must be a little bit different doing the whole, you know, it was something your parents were involved in and you kind of like, went in with them. I mean, you're right. Most people are, you know, they have to beg and plead just to get the first reptile, not just the first snake. I mean, you grew up around these things. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I would go into school and then from the monitors and for our big iguanas and things like that, I would have scratches on my forearms and, uh, you know, people would ask <laughs> and they would say, Oh, did you get hurt in the playground? I'm like, no, it was from my, you know, my iguana or, you know, my five, six foot uh, water monitor, things like that. So. You know, putting them in their clothes, just handling them, not using brush or anything like that, obviously. Right, right. Yeah, no, it was, it was well, an interesting experience. For me, it wasn't anything, you know, unusual, but um, to my other friends and things like that, it was, it was a bit unusual, so for them it was. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> so what brought you to retics? Was it like, what? Do you, do you have like that defining moment when you were like, 
I got to get one of these or something like that? Um, yeah, actually, um, so I had started getting, you know, the smaller species. That's how I started out when I was, like I, like I said, I was 11, maybe 12. And then um, mm-hmm. I started getting, you know, slowly into, like, larger pythons, like, you know, fall pythons, which were larger than garter snakes, obviously. And then um, mm-hmm. probably when I was on 17, um, someone at the local pet shop, they had actually reticulated pythons and Burmese pythons. And then um, I received the Burmese python in my private collection first, and then a few months later I got a reticulated python, and I've kept them ever since. So about 15 years later now. Awesome. Yep. That's cool. So, I mean, like, we're, we're like uh, was there kind of like a little bit of a learning curve, or was it just like dive into the pool, one retick quickly became like 20? No, there was a huge learning curve for me. Um, the individual that sold it to me, you know, we actually are quite friendly, and um, he mm. helped me out a lot. Um, be, be quite honest, you know, back then at least, the, the, most of the reticulated pythons I had access to were wild-caught animals. Um, and a wild-caught retick as opposed to, you know, a captive-bred animal, um, there's, a, there's a huge temperament difference, um, mm. you know, for, for many reasons, obviously. You know, they come from an environment that's more competitive, this, you know, do-or-die environment kind of, and then sometimes their trips aren't always, like, you know, most pleasant trips. Sometimes they go through a right. lot of stress, and then they go into the pet shops, and sometimes they have these exposed environments, and now all of a sudden that same animal's in your home, and um, it's not that it's a bad animal or aggressive animal or anything's wrong with it at all. It's, it's just a scared animal, doesn't know what's going on. So I'm, I'm sure you guys realize that as well. So, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's carpets and scrubs. It's just they're on the smaller scale of if it's pissed off at you kind of yeah, deal. Yeah. But, um, I mean, it, 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 uh, looking back at those days now, I mean, like you're, you're grabbing these puppy dog um, retics. I mean, does that like that's got to be like, yes, <laughs> don't have to go back to, you know, dodging teeth coming at me every time I open the cage. Uh, yeah, we actually do have, I mean, in, in my collection, I have one or two originally wild-caught animals. They've been obviously in my possession for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing on Nerd. Um, they do have, you know, a few animals that they've had in their collection for a while, but originally they were wild-caught animals. So, um, but yeah, having not to deal with, you know, freshly imported, you know, wild-caught animals, I mean, that's, that's a change of pace for sure. Um, mm-hmm. That's why even when um you know, I have volunteers helping me with my private collection. And then over at the shop in Nerd, we have some people helping us. And then sometimes they'll say, oh, it's, you know, it's challenging to deal with these guys. And um, these guys meaning the retics, obviously. And yeah. um, I, I think in the back of my head, I was like, oh, boy, you guys are real mi- really missing out. Because <laughs> some years back, it was a lot more challenging. Uh, it was rewarding, <laughs> and it was worth it. Um, but nevertheless, challenging for sure. Right. So your, your, your own private collection, can you kind of give us a little bit of an overview of what you're working with right now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a pretty diverse collection right now. Um, primarily, I'm working with reticulated pythons and short-tailed pythons. In a, in a short period of time, I've actually accumulated, you know, a good amount of short-tailed pythons. Um, and then I, use, I also focus, like, secondarily on tegus and ball pythons. Um, so those are the four main species I work with. But that being said, in my collection, both as breeders and pets, I have all kinds of um, reptiles. I have Papuan pythons, boas, mm-hmm. uh, Malaysian water monitors, the Philippine water monitors, ackies, um, things like that, and plus more. That's awesome. Yep. Um, um, so, did... Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, the I only other thing I was going to say is... Um, um, and there it also, we, you know, I have, you know, we have you know, quite a bit of animals there. 
So it's it's a nice mm-hmm. um it's a nice balance being able to work with my private collection here and then getting to work with you know the collection there because they really do complement one another because a lot of species here there like the monkey tail skinks and um mm-hmm. uh bowlands pythons things like that are you know things I don't have in my private collection so. How's dealing with the pop ones, pythons? Because we've heard good things and we've heard um, a little bit more of the challenging things. Like they, they, their their colors are intense, but they will eat everything and anything, and they're always hungry. I mean, how how are you kind of dealing with those guys right now? Yeah, um, actually, it's not too bad for me. Um, mm-hmm. Currently, I have a 1.1 pair that I'm trying to breed, and um, over nice. here we have a few as well, and um, they're a bit wiry. In terms of, say, for example, if you're standing next to, like, a rack or you're standing next to a chair, they're just wrapping, you know, everything. They're grasping onto everything. Um, so they're pretty wiry, and they're extremely mm-hmm. strong. I mean, I mean, equivalent size, even retic, isn't nearly as strong as an equivalent size boo and python. But in terms of wow. temperament, um, I just, you know, utilize a lot of techniques I use with the retics, and it's worked out mm-hmm. really well. I haven't had any type of, you know, issues with their temperament at all. It's just, you know, a different animal. It's a very athletic, strong animal. Um, and like I said, this is kind of, you know, wiry in terms of their movement. I mean, you could, pretty much when I handle them and when I'm cleaning them and just, you know, showing them, I basically go to the center of the room because I want to make sure they can't grasp onto anything. But, but yeah, they're, they're pretty wiry and they're pretty fast. That's Are you cool. working with a, adults? Or is your pair yeah. adults? Yeah, my, my, okay. my pair are adults. My female is probably at least 14 feet. Um, yeah. And my male, you know, <laughs> my male is a few feet smaller than that. And uh, that's always challenging as well um, because the and pythons, you know, females will obviously uh, potentially attack males uh, for a potential mm-hmm. meal. And um, yeah. so you want, I'm trying to get my male a bit bigger, but um, I've done some introductions. Um, her follicle development is really strong. I've palpated her several times and it's, it's working out well, but you always get nervous when you're dealing with a snake that eats other snakes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you do. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So working yeah, at um how did how did working at Nerd kind of come about? And uh, I mean, how long have you been there? And and what's it like working there? Yeah, so I've been um, working for Kevin over there for about five years. Basically, um, I used to volunteer in different states that I've lived for, you know, different facilities and different private collectors. And I was going to go and volunteer over there. And then um, I saw I saw that they were actually hiring. And then I, I went in, and they pretty much hired me on the spot. And um, Nice. Ever since then, I've been working for him, and I'm, currently I'm his head manager, so I pretty much help him oversee all operations from breeding to sales. And it's, I mean, it's a great opportunity. I mean, they, you know, what they say if you if you feel like um, it's it's not you know a strenuous you know activity, and you, you feel like basically it's not a task, and you're really not working. And that's really mm-hmm. what it is when I go into there. I really don't feel like I'm working, like I'm going in and clocking in. I'm just going in there and doing something I'll be doing regardless. So. It really is a good experience for a reptile enthusiast. It's just like, you know, it's kind of like the Mecca. Yeah. And uh, what's, uh, what's your favorite stuff to work with over there? Cause I mean, we, we went there, I mean, they had uh, pretty much everything. Everybody would find something, some cage of something that they liked over there. So, I mean, what's your like favorite kind of room to mess around in? For me, I definitely spend the most amount of time in, in the first three rooms of the facility, the reticulated python rooms. Um, this year, um, especially this time of the year, because now it's breeding season, um, so I'm continually, you know, going there and making sure we have stuff paired up well. Um, I'm monitoring, you know, follicle development on the females. 
um, making sure that, you know, females have good weight and, and things like that. Even today, today was my off day. I went, I was there for several mm-hmm. hours in the retake rooms. So. <laughs> yeah, several hours. It's an off day. Yeah. So <laughs> you weren't there for the whole yeah. day. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I do in my spare time. I, I stop by there too. I'm lucky enough. I only live like five or 10 minutes down the road. So I could just jump over. Okay. Perfect. So do you have any control or say in like the pairings as far as, you know, if you're putting certain to make certain combos or morphs or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, Kevin's really big into empowerment, especially um, he trusts, you know, my judgment with the retake. So, especially um, this year, majority of the pairings I've pretty much been in charge of. I mean, he'll obviously give us feedback because, you know, he has many, many years of experience. Um, he's been, you know, breeding them almost as long as I've been alive. But um, I pretty mm-hmm. much do majority of the, the pairings currently. And then, um, you know, he'll come into the room and we'll talk more about it. And sometimes we'll tweak things or alter things. Uh, because I'll say, you know what, I think it should go, you know, such and such female. And then he'll say, you know what, this female is going off feed. I feel like she's, you know, ready right now. And uh, it would be better suited to put, to put it with that girl. So, you know, he does definitely give feedback, and we go back and forth. But he gives me, you know, a lot of empowerment with that. And he lets me he lets me go in there and play, basically. Wow, that's cool. Very I've cool. often wondered, like, uh, you know, with a professional facility like that, um, do you is the pairings planned out years in advance, or are you guys just looking at it season by season? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of both, because we do sit okay. down, and um, him and I talk about it. And we literally have uh-huh. a whiteboard where we're going to write um, upcoming breedings, you know, whether it be for this year or next year, and uh, what hats, for example, we need to produce where visually it might not improve, um, present like a really impressive animal now, but, you know, next right. season, the following season is really going to come into handy. So we do that. We actually did that over the summer, and we spoke a lot, and um, we pretty much do it every summer. And, I mean, some, some decisions are, you know, somewhat last minute. But for the most part, it's all he's pretty meticulous. He's, the thing that people have to understand with uh, our collection there, a lot of people think our collection is far bigger than it actually is. Um, because I know some private collectors that actually have collections that are comparable to the size of the ones at Nerd. Uh, I think the big difference is, is, is the quality. I mean, Kevin's really, really meticulous. Um, like I said, even when I'm doing the pairings, um, he's, over, you know, he's overlooking everything, and we're you know, bouncing off each other in terms of ideas. So I think that's the reason he's been, you know, so successful because he really does go quality. It's not just about, you know, punching out, uh, you know, uh, a ton of retics and just, you know, plowing through them. Um, he really does go for quality, and each individual pairing, you know, has to mean something. And he's taught me that, obviously, and over the years he feels more comfortable with me doing the pairings, and that was the case last year and this year. So awesome. what's what's the one thing with working with a big collection like that that's uh... – sort of transferred into your private collection? What's the one thing that you, you know, applied from working, you know, at a, at a big facility? Yeah. Um, it probably goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of like pre-planning because okay. previously when I operated retakes, I would say, you know what, this is going to make something really cool this year. I'm going to make, you know, such and such albino, I'm going to make albino tiger motley with potentially with sunfire in there. And, you know, it's going to mm-hmm. look great. And then, you know, Kevin taught me, obviously you know this, but you learn it more with, you know, with experience. Kevin says, you know what, think long-term. You know, do a few pairings, obviously, they're going to produce nice stuff now, but you can't just think of this year. You have to think of the following year and the following year after that. And with the female retakes, since in general they take at least three years to reach breeding size, you really have to be meticulous um, because it's not as if, um, well, if I mess it up and I do an incorrect pairing, I could just correct it next year. It really does throw right. you off quite a bit when you do incorrect pairings. 
so basically just um just having the you know the foresight and um looking ahead and that's something i mean i did it to an extent previously but um uh-huh. he's really really meticulous about that and that's something i've definitely learned in terms of planning and being organized with the breedings cool cool that's awesome <clears throat> all right well let's um we're going to approach this like um for some of our listeners that maybe have no experience with retics and then there's other listeners that have retics and are, are well versed with retics but let's talk some natural history like where they're from and you know what's what's the environment like that they come from and all that kind of stuff yeah sounds sounds great um well that's actually a pretty broad answer because they're from all over southeast asia including you know all the islands there um a lot of the the original stock actually came from mainland so it came from malaysia and then um a lot of the other varieties that we're seeing are from the different islands whether it be um jampeas or madus and things like that um a lot of the island varieties also tend to be you know smaller smaller animals um there are some exceptions obviously like the from Sulawesi the Sulawesi retics get actually quite large they're the largest in general um so they come from competitive environments whenever you're talking about you know southeast asia you're talking about you know tough predators and, and tough prey items so that's why they're so you know well adapted um when they have for example like the hair trigger responses um when they're responding to like a prey item being next to them um and being you know big strong animals um so yeah that's a, that's a little bit of background on them okay cool um so when you're saying the uh Silhouettes are the biggest. What I mean, like, what are we talking about size-wise? Like, wh- what are we seeing? Well, just to give you an idea, we currently have a Silhouette that's at least a solid twenty-two and a half feet solid. Oh, um, and bigger out there. Holy. Yeah. Wow. I that's was actually <laughs> um, I was cleaning her enclosure the other day, and um, so we have a really good crew, obviously, and some more more experienced than others. And um, they come to me in the, in the office and they say, yeah, we're going to need your help after work uh, because we have our another facility. Um, and it was for the, moving to Siloisi. And they were pretty intimidated by her. And she honestly, she was a doll. She's, she's great. She has an excellent temperament. Um, she's pretty fast. And it is intimidating, though, to have, you know, a snake that's that large. Um, even mm-hmm. with the crew that we have that's pretty experienced, it can be a little bit intimidating. Um, but, yeah, as long as they, you know, utilize, you know, proper techniques they're fine and you just don't you need know to learn to read the animal um i think mm-hmm. that's an issue that uh some keepers have trouble with not not obviously seasoned keepers i'm talking about people that are first getting into the retics or maybe they have like one or two and um whenever i see or hear about people getting fit nine times out of ten it's you know it's a keeper related issue and hopefully you know, they'll learn from the mistakes and then they they move forward um but yeah so I guess we'll get more into reading the animal later. But, but yeah, there's a lot mm-hmm. to say on that. We could have a whole show just on reading retics, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they are probably, I would say, probably the most intelligent or one of the most intelligent of the pythons. I mean, would you agree I, with I that? I would actually say, uh, yeah, I strongly agree with that. I, I definitely think they're the most intelligent of the strictors personally, um, from my mm. experience. Um, for, for example... They really do have good memories, and I, I tell you know workers this all the time, whether it's in my private collection or elsewhere. Um, make sure you're handling the animal well. Uh, make sure you have a positive session with the animal, because I've seen, for mm-hmm. example, uh, an animal work um, react completely different to me than it would one of my workers. 
and one of my workers oh. in the Navy had a negative experience. They were, like, roughhousing the animal. Not really roughhousing it, but they weren't using proper technique, and in their mind they were doing fine. But, you know, I could tell that they weren't being as, you know, uh, uh, they weren't using strong technique, basically. And the animals remember mm-hmm. this. Um, and then, um, say, for example, if you put an animal that's a little bit timid and you're putting it in an enclosure that's close to where people's faces are, and they're continually seeing this big heat signal, this heat signature by their enclosure, and then they slam mm-hmm. their enclosure, they slam their face to the enclosure, and now they're identifying, you know, someone walking by with pain. Um, and they remember mm-hmm. that. So they could easily rec- recognize their owners. And for a lot of people, especially if they're not familiar, you know, with different species of snakes, if they just deal with one or two, they, they may not necessarily think that's a big deal. But not, not mm-hmm. all animals could do that. Not all animals could clearly, you know, recognize, you know, this is the individual I saw previously, the person that, you know, picks me up and cleans me, and, and this is somebody else. Or this is somebody else that last time um, they were maybe roughhousing me a little bit or they didn't use proper technique. They basically scared me, and um, now I'm going to remember that. So they definitely do react differently to different individuals, and I always thought that was interesting because dealing with other snakes, I never really, I never really saw that. Um, right. But they are exceptionally intelligent animals. Um, when they get out of enclosures, they'll use the same escape route every single time. So they do uh, have learned to a certain extent. Um, but that also comes to your advantage, too, when, when you're training them, if you think about it. Um, mm-hmm. You say, for example, with, with hook training. So um, we, we talked a little bit about that. So basically, at our facility, we, we, we hook train all the reticulated pythons. Um, so by hook training, what I mean is we're basically giving them cues to let them know that now it's time to be handled. Now we're going to take you out of mm-hmm. your enclosure, whether it be to show you, you know, to a crowd that we have during a tour, uh, whether it be to clean you. Basically, it's time to be picked up. It's not time to be fed. Um, so what we'll do is we'll take a hook and we'll gently touch the, the side of their head. And then once mm-hmm. they're in thinking mode, so you'll see like nice um, long tongue flicks as opposed to really short tongue flicks or no tongue flicks at all, or they'll stick their tongue out and you can only see the tip of it. Um, while they're really tensed up, all these, they, they give us so many signals um, before they strike, for example. They let us know, like, look, I'm, I feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, please, you know, leave me alone. And as long as you could read those signals, um, then you're fine. So we usually, we hook train the animal. And we don't necessarily use a hook. A lot of times we use, like, paper towel rolls. Um, mm-hmm. I, myself, am not a big fan of using hooks um, because if they bite the hook, it's going to be very uncomfortable for them. Um, so a lot of times I'll use a paper towel roll and then I'll rub them on the side of the face. Once I see that they're calming down a bit and they've processed the situation, then I'll put my hand mid-body, and I'll gently pick the animal up, supporting it. You have to give them time to process it. I think what, what happens a lot of times, even when people are doing hook training, um, mm-hmm. they'll touch the, the retic on the head, and they say, okay, now it's ready, and they pull it out. And, and that's, not necessarily, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I mean that's great that you did that. But uh, it's kind of like when people do the California roll at a stop sign. They go, well, I kind of stop. <laughs> yeah. I'm all set, and they keep on going. Good enough. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the whole point is so that they, um, that they process this, that they say, right. okay, well, this, this person's coming up to my enclosure, and um, now we're going to have a session. They're going to take me out. Um, I might have been sleeping when they, when they approached me. And um, just like a person, if you, you know, run up to them, you say, wake up, wake up, you know, they, you may get hit. Uh, if you do that mm-hmm. to an animal, you make it, you may, you make it bit. Um, so anyways, so we let them process the situation. Once we can see that they're awake, they're processing the situation, they're calm, um, that's when you take them out. And now you have a positive interaction with that animal. 
it's not um, identifying being taken out of the enclosure, but being fearful, but basically, you know, either being um, like poked by something or being just grabbed out of there. Um, they, you want them to come out, you know, somewhat on their terms or completely on their terms, actually. Um, and it's a lot of subtle things that with time you recognize very, very easily. Um, but initially it could be difficult for people. At least for me, initially it was difficult. And, um, you know, sometimes mistakes can be, you know, a little bit costly. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, so it's all, it's all about body language because obviously they can't communicate with us verbally. Um, so it's all about body language. And um, once you have a positive body language, which, you know, the retake, then, then it works out really well for people. Um, it's extremely rare that I see someone that's a bit seasoned and knows how to read their animal well have a negative occurrence with them. Um, extremely rare. I mean, I'm talking about even with challenging retics, um, challenging in terms of, you know, size, temperament, you know, whatever the case is. Um, and then also another thing to add is um, sometimes I'll even tell, you know, individuals with my private collection, whether they're volunteering here or at the shop, um, make sure you have a good body language too, because a lot of times people don't take that into consideration. They'll do everything right, but they're tense or they're, they're jittery. And um, now, you know, this intelligent animal is looking at you saying, wait a minute, this person's acting jittery, this person's acting tense. You know, I could read this body language and I could tell that something is wrong. Maybe this person is going to grab me, maybe they're going to hit me, uh, maybe they're a predator, maybe something negative is going to happen. And they feed off that body language when they say that animals smell fear. Um, they're, they're feeding mm-hmm. off your body language and now all of a sudden you were tense, now they're tense. So it's not just about the animal's uh, body language, but also, you know, your communication with them via your body language. Um, I mean, something so subtle. But it actually is um, it's pretty interesting and pretty involved, so especially with intelligent animals so yeah wow that's that's really uh really cool. <clears throat> I never thought about the uh tongue flicks um, you know as far as looking at the tongue flicks and sort of getting an idea of you know what's going on with the animal that's uh I'll have to check that out um it's a huge so, indicator yeah. <laughs> Yep, no, go ahead. On the uh, dwarfs and super yeah. dwarfs. Uh, maybe you can break it down for us. I mean, um, you know, locality-wise, and 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 you know what the what the sizes are, and you know, just you know, like what's popular in the hobby. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so you know, super dwarfs are pretty popular uh, amongst keepers. We get a lot of requests for for super dwarfs. Um, so when they say super dwarfs. Um, ma- not majority, but many of the island locales tend to be quite a bit smaller. Um, there are a few exceptions, but in general, island locales are smaller. They have smaller prey items, and then um, corresponding to that, you have smaller retics. Um, so, for example, there's a, a locale referred to as uh, Kalatoas, and those are usually what's referred to as like a true, su- true super dwarf. I'm talking about males that maybe are around five feet or so, and females that maybe are about three feet longer. So you look at it like an eight-foot female. And that would be, you know, wow. actually a good size one. Um, I mean, obviously, you always have exceptional cases where one is bigger, just like with people. You have some people that are 7'2". Um, but we're talking about, um, you know, average scenarios. And um, so those are, in my mind, true super dwarfs. Um, but then you'll have some other island varieties that, you know, still are, you know, pretty small. Like you have the, the, the madus, and the madus actually stay um, small as well. You're talking about maybe between 6 and, and 10 feet. Um, similar with um, the Honey Islands also. Um, mm-hmm. They're not 
quite the smallest. The smallest would be the, the, the Calatolas for sure, um, but but they are definitely small. Um, so the, so those are probably the, the smallest ones. And then um, next you're going to have ones like like your Jampeas, for example, which is probably mm-hmm. one of the larger dwarf locales. Um, mm-hmm. So you're going to get them probably between like six feet and then maybe like around 12 feet or so. I've heard exceptional cases where some are a bit bigger, but I'm talking about on average. Um, and then that, that's pretty much, you know, your dwarfs. I mean, they have many other locales also, but those are some of the more popular ones, the ones that we went over. So you have the Calatoas, which they, the super dwarf ones, which are stay quite small. Um, we're talking mm-hmm. about between five and eight feet. Uh, the Madus, which stays small. Um, and then if you look and talking about bigger dwarfs, talking about Champeas. Um, and there, there's so many others that, um, you know, were imported previously and people are still working with, but th- those are some of the more popular ones. And um, okay. an important thing to point out is um, when people have these, you know, platinum super dwarfs, for example, or albino super dwarfs, um, usually, um, obviously, platinum is a mainland mutation, so those are those are animals that get big. Um, mm-hmm. Albinos, the Clark Strain albinos, you know, they, they get large, but they've obviously been mixed in at some point uh, with super dwarf blood. And most um, reputable keepers, what they'll do is they'll consider it a super dwarf if it's at least about 50% super dwarf or more. And they'll list the percentages there too for you. They'll have on their site uh, 50% super dwarf and, uh, you know, platinum head anneries, for example. Um, and in my mind, if something is less than 50% super dwarf, uh, it can uh, potentially, you know, get some good size depending on what it's mixed with. Gotcha. Okay. So if it's a 75% super dwarf, uh, like uh, albino, like you were saying, what typically is a size range for something like that? Like 12 feet, 15 feet? Yeah, I was about to say that. You took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) But um, it's always kind of, you know, tough, though, because it's just like if you mix, like, dog breeds, right? You're usually going to get an intermediate animal, but then sometimes you'll have one to an extreme, you know, end of the spectrum. But in general, I would say probably 12 feet, 12 feet. Puffy sounds like a pretty solid answer for, you know, maybe a female. Um, mm-hmm. A bit on the large side, but I don't think it would necessarily be ridiculous to assume that it could potentially get that big. Okay. And then, you know, I, I know you had put in some some of the, like, mid-size. We're talking, like, 10 to 15 feet. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those guys. Yeah, yeah. So um, so early on, um, there, there was some retics that came from uh, from Bali, for example, the yellowheads. Um, those would be considered in general like a, like a mid-size uh, retic. Um, you have your slayers, which um, which are which are mid uh, mid-size retics as well. Uh, the golden child mutation that um, that Kevin actually got in the late '90s that was originally from the uh, mm-hmm. Slayer Island. Um, so in general, golden childs tend to stay smaller. But although I have seen really big golden childs, I've seen 17 foot golden childs. We have one. Um, but that being said, you know, mid-sized retic, we're talking about 10 feet to about 15-ish feet. Um, so the Bali's, uh, Yellowheads, the Thais, the Slayers, um, those will probably be the, the most popular examples. And then um, then you have your large ones afterwards. Um, so okay. So your large ones, you're talking about mainland, uh, Malaysia, your your Ambons, your uh, ones from Sumatra, of course the Sulawesi's, which, you know, happen to be the largest uh, on average. Uh, from Java, um, Borneo also. So mm-hmm. um, it just depends on the region, really. And it really just depends on, on their environment. Um, if, you, if you're talking about, you know, a large area with, with, with large prey items, I mean, usually you're going to have larger retics corresponding to that. If you're talking about an island that 
maybe has smaller prey items or maybe is you know a bit more competitive, then you you may have smaller uh, reticulated pythons. That's that's usually the way it works. Um, you know they've evolved this way over you know long long time. So. Okay. So when you say, I'm just curious with this one. When you say yellowhead, is that named specifically because the head is yellow, or is yeah, I've never exactly. Seen it. Okay. So what happened is, um, I remember when I when I was a uh, when I was quite a bit younger, yellowhead was was a huge deal. This is like before, like you know, the morphs were really popular or accessible for most people. Um, so there were mm-hmm. you know, very little morphs at all, and the morphs that were out, you know, they were they weren't really accessible for most keepers. Um, so having like a Bali yellow head, which literally had a yellowish coloration to the head, um, they had a distinct pattern and they, you know, they got a good size, um, like 10 to 15 feet, like we were saying before, they were like highly desirable. Um, and they, they still are, but not obviously now with other options, there's other animals that become, um, you know, higher, you know, more highly regarded, I guess. But, but yeah, so they did have a yellowish, uh, head and it was noticeably different than say for example a Malaysian uh retic. Okay. All right. And I'm curious and and I don't know how this plays into like the the retic community but is there a thought as far as um you know some of these islands being separate species or subspecies or what's the consensus yeah. with that? Yeah, no, they've actually done um for the taxonomy of them, they've done a lot of work recently. Um, I believe they have the Jampeas uh, listed. Um, I don't really keep up with taxonomy as much as I should because it's altering so much all the time. But I know the Jampeas, right. at least, I believe they have it as a different subspecies. And to my knowledge, they have at least three different uh, subspecies that they're recognizing. And, and that's always altering. But, um, but, yeah, they definitely do make some distinctions on that for sure. Okay. All right. All right. So, um I'm also curious about, you know, when we when we talk about size wise, is 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 it possible to keep a mainland uh, you know, retic on well, when I say smaller side, I, what I mean by that is a smaller side for a mainland, um, say on diet or are these guys just like so with olive pythons, even if you don't really feed them, they just seem to grow. They grow. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's just like they just grow. You're like no uh, stopping them. Yeah. Do so. retics fall into that category, or are they, uh, you know, what you feed them is what you get? Yeah, I mean, it just it more so depends if we're talking about you know properly feeding your animal. It's you know it's technically mm. going to grow for it, for its whole life. But that being said, you could properly feed your animal, um, and then you could slow down that rate you know significantly, and. Um, so i just give you an example. Uh, a lot of people think, you know, it's a mainland retic. It, oh, automatically it's going to get over 20 feet. And, mm-hmm. and that being said, that's, that's really exceptional examples. Um, even mm-hmm. in, like, good-sized collections, having a retic that's 20-plus feet isn't common at, at all. Um, I mean, I have one or two in my private collection. Uh, we have a handful at Nerd. So, so it definitely does happen. But on mm-hmm. average, you're talking about an animal that's going to be in the teens. So okay. you know, 16 feet. 17 feet, um, you know, maybe 18 feet. Um, that's probably the equivalent of like, you know, a male person being close to six feet tall or around six feet tall. And then just right. like you have, you know, really tall people, sometimes you have really long retics. Um, right. But it's not a common example. People always think, oh, it's, it's a retic. It's definitely you get 20 plus feet. And it's just simply not the case. Um, most of my really well-fed animals, well-fed girls are in, you know, between teens to like, 
Does and I'm genetics... talking about mainland girls. Okay. Um, does yeah, does genetics play into it? Uh, yeah, it definitely plays into it because um, now especially when you're talking about the, the morphs, uh, because some of the morphs actually originate from uh, dwarf bloodlines. Uh, when we talk about the mm. phantom mutation, um, I'm sure we'll <laughs> talk about morphs later on, um, orange ghost stripes, and all those actually originate from, from smaller animals. Um, okay. That's why when you, you know, it depends on what you have mixed, but um, that there are a lot of small bloodlines out there, and sometimes people don't even necessarily realize it. Right. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> okay. Let's 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 dive into more of uh, your approach to keeping um, retics. Um, you know, I think maybe where we should start is what are some of the things that you should think about um, before getting into retics, and maybe some of the misconceptions of retics. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. Honestly, it's um. It's probably one of the most important topics, too. Even when I have people interested in buying one, I, I always qualify it. Um, I mean, the first mm-hmm. thing to think about is, is the most obvious, right? I mean, these guys get big. Um, they, some yeah. of them get really big. Um, I mean, even if you have an average size retic, let's say, you know, 15, 16 feet, 16 and a half feet, that's still, you know, still a good size animal. And um, they can make, you know, potentially excellent pets. Um, but I think someone has to be familiar with the animal, whether – they've, you know, volunteered somewhere or they worked at a facility before. Uh, I'm not saying that it necessarily wouldn't work out well for someone that, you know, basically gets as a first pet with limited experience, but I, I usually don't advise it at all. Um, but, yeah, that being said, it's, it's going to be their size. They're, you know, they're big, strong animals, and naturally they're predators in their environment, and even though they make awesome pets, they have some instincts that correspond to that. And uh, let me, I got to elaborate a little bit on that. Um, sure. Mm-hmm. Something that's pretty, um, pretty well known to retix is, for example, feeding response, right? And so what I mean by feeding response is that naturally reticulated pythons, an adult reticulated python, may wait next to a game trail, for example, for literally potentially weeks at a time. And what it'll do is it'll just wait and wait and wait and wait and it'll wait till the meal comes to it. So say, for example, if I was a prey item out in Southeast Asia, and I happen to step near or even worse on a retic, it's going to respond mm. immediately. It's going to grab that item and wrap it up. Um, so they really do have, you know, this quick, you know, hair trigger. Um, it's, it's really impressive. You know, it's, it's cool and everything. But that being said, you know, that's not really weaned out when they're in captivity. Um, so a lot of times well, when you have a keeper and they don't approach your animal correctly, they don't do the techniques we were talking about before um, in terms of uh, hook training. It'll make sure that the animal has time to process the situation and think. They just go in there. You may have an animal that tries, you know, bite you or wrap you, and it has nothing to do with aggression. Aggression doesn't even come into the equation. It's basically reacting um, because in the wild you could potentially be a meal or even worse, you could potentially be something that's trying to eat, you know, that retic attack it, and it has to respond immediately. They come from, you know, competitive environments. Um, there's a lot of competition, you know, for the prey that's out there. And there's a lot of mm. uh, other predators that are trying to attack them as well. So, um, so they, anyway, they respond very, very quickly. And um, a lot of times this is misinterpreted, and then people think, oh, you know, retics, they're large animals, and, oh, they're kind of scary because, you know, some people think, oh, they like to bite. And, and that's not the case at all. And um, I always enjoy when I have people start volunteering or starting to work, and they think, oh, the retics, those, those are the scary ones. Those are the tough ones. And then once they actually work with these animals, um, they see, oh, they're, they're not, you know, scary at all. 
Um, this is just natural for them, the way they're acting. And if I know how to handle it, it works out really well. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see. It's just that people you know, don't, don't know. And that's why it's important that we educate people. And um, we do tours and, you know, educational programs and things like that. So people can see that, you know what, these animals aren't so bad. Um, but, yeah, so one of the things is definitely going to be um, the feeding response. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I really answered your question or kind of went on a tangent there. But feeding response yeah, no is definitely something that's taken into consideration. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely the size of the animals. You're talking about, you know, a big, impressive, you know, majestic animal that's, that's amazing. Uh, and it also has, has these adaptations that you just have to be aware of when you get this animal, such as the feeding response. Um, but, you know, for someone who knows how to handle it well, then you're pretty much, you know, all set. Um, but, yeah, so that's something to consider. And they're also really agile. Um, because if you think about it, if you take a 15-foot reticulated python and you take a 15-foot Burmese python, for example, uh, the Burmese mm-hmm. python is going to weigh considerably more than the retic usually. Um, retics, despite being, you know, big, impressive animals, they're, they're really athletic. They have, they have a real athletic look for them. For a healthy retic that's not overweight, um, uh-huh. that's a relatively fast animal for its size. Um, I mean, they're excellent swimmers, for example. They found them off the coast, you know, on countless occasions, and that's part of the reason why they've been able to have such a wide geographic range. I mean, you know, all these islands over in Southeast Asia uh, is partially because of that. So you talk about a big athletic snake, which is, really impressive but that being said you have to be ready for a big athletic snake so yeah right okay um what about as far as uh i know you had put something something in the notes about um the dangers of both demonizing and uh anthropomorphizing um them um what's your thoughts on that (laughs) yeah we could we could talk about that so um Basically, when I say the, I'll, I'll touch on the anthropomorphizing first. So mm-hmm. basically, it's, it's you know, we, we, they treat the retics as if, you know, they're people. And, you know, I, I huh. love all my animals here. I, I love my retics. And I think that, I think it's great to, you know, to love your animals. Don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. you also have to respect what, what the animal is. And I'd probably give more examples to explain that more. Sometimes I'll see videos online. And, and don't get me wrong. Most keepers don't do this. Most, right. And okay. pretty much all responsible keepers I know don't do this. We're talking about, you know, the exceptional case. Um, right. So they'll, they'll treat their animals as if they're people. And I've even seen people, like, videos, and I even know of someone personally that went and they, they kissed their retic, in, you know, in the face. And oh, you have to understand, oh, for, an animal with, with, <laughs> for an animal with heat pits that goes by heat signatures naturally, and that's their main sense that they – one of the main senses that they have, and now you're bringing – um, this huge heat signature in our faces we have a lot of blood vessels so we have a lot of heat going through it oh, and now we're right. going to bring this huge heat signature up to this animal um, even if you have the most placid pleasant reticulated python or, or python period it's, it's scary um, yeah. you could intimidate this animal and a lot of animals even if they're scared um, they may just back down but sometimes just you know if a person's scared you know they may you know react to it and sometimes what they'll do is they'll, they'll snap forward and, you know, they'll go even for a quick fight, like a defensive fight, like, leave me alone. Please leave me alone. Um, and I think it's important that people, you know, respect these animals and, you know, love them and, you know, you know really appreciate these animals, but also realize what they are. Um, take into consideration mm-hmm. when you have these animals, you know, their natural adaptations, um, their natural physiology, and, you know, treat them for what they are um, while you're, you know, simultaneously, you know, caring for them. So does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah, so a yeah, lot of sense. yeah. Don't don't kiss the retake on the face. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I didn't think that was something we had to cover. I gave an extreme yeah, example. Usually, when you yeah. give extreme examples, it gets the point across. I mean, there's a lot of other yeah. examples that are far more subtle than that. But I was like, right. you know what? Let me go through the extreme so we just get the point across. <laughs> no, no, we got it. Yeah, it's a good. It's a good yeah, one. yeah. Um, and then um, the demonizing of them. Um, I mean, snakes in general. Uh, you know, for cultural reasons and even sometimes for religious reasons, which is a whole different topic. You know, people are, mm-hmm. people are fearful of snakes. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm talking about by and large, the average individual that's not familiar with the snake, not obviously the average herper. Um, they, they, they don't really know much about them. All they know is that other people are afraid of them. Um, they know that there are some snakes out there, for example, that are, are, are venomous um, in order to get their prey items. And they know, so there are some snakes, for example, like retics that get very, very large. Um, and they automatically associate this with, you know, something negative. You know, these these things are scary. These things are mean. These things are aggressive. These animals. And it doesn't mean that at all. Um, the size of the reticulated python is, is strictly meant um, to eat. It's meant to survive. That's the way they've evolved. And there's no correspondence, whatever, uh, whatsoever, rather, with um, with aggression. Um, so a lot of times people are, are, are fearful of these animals because they just they just don't understand. Um, even on tours, I'll have people, as soon as they see the big retics, um, they're kind of, you know, uh, in the corner. They're kind of cowering in the corner, and they're very, very fearful because they're big. They, they look like tough guys, and that's why I always tell the people on tours, I'm like, you know what? I know a lot of these retics look like tough guys, but some of these retics in this room are some of the most pleasant animals in this whole building. And it's true. I'm not just hmm. saying that to milk it. It really does wind right. up being true. And then I take out the animal. I'm petting it. You know, where, you know, obviously you have to supervise and make sure the animal's comfortable, um, and as long as you, you know, have the session go well with someone that's experienced at the end of it, the people feel way more comfortable, uh, with this animal, but they are, you know, they are demonized snakes in general, but I think even more so big animal that someone doesn't understand. All they know is that people are usually afraid of snakes and this is a really big one. Um, <laughs> and that's all they, that's all they pretty much know. And, um, so there's negative connotations associated with that. And, um, that's why I think education and, and um, things along those lines are, are extremely, extremely important. And that's what we do pretty much weekly over at the shop. When I say the shop, I mean nerd. And even okay. when I do shows with my personal animals, um, because I'm, I'm insured to do shows, so I do shows on occasion. And um, I want to make sure that the individuals know, look, I know we're not familiar with this. I know it seems a little strange. It seems strange having this really, really big snake. And there's certain hobbies to me that appear strange, and probably for the same reasons, because I don't know much about them. And if I actually sat down and I spoke to someone about it and they would educate me more about it and I had more experience with it, at the end of it, I'd probably say, you know what? It's really not for me that hobby, but it actually is pretty interesting and it's not that bad. And my perception of it initially wasn't really accurate. I think the same thing with the retics. And, um, and I see that all the time. People have this uh, perception and demonize these animals. And then once they actually interact with them, um, their perception is completely different. So, Okay. Very cool. Um, just on a side note, you, you know, you're saying you're doing shows and, um, you know, do you find that um, that that helps with, I, I guess, when I, do you find that we had somebody on a while back and they were talking about how, um, you know, they would do that and they got a lot of negative uh, feedback uh, because, you know, people would then know that that person had snakes or whatever. Is that, do you find that's the case or do you find you get more positive reaction? I mean, in general, I get more, more positive reactions. And I think that's okay. something that 
at least in um in my experience it depends on your delivery um, right mm-hmm. because some i don't i really don't want to critique other people too much so we're going to talk about a hypothetical individual uh, sure so sometimes people are you know kind of you know abrasive in terms of their presentation they say mm-hmm. oh isn't this animal great and they just you know bring it out and it's in front of people and they're just kind of really in their face and and they don't realize that you know they may realize that this animal's puppy dog came in terms of the keeper, but their audience doesn't realize that. Their audience may be afraid of this animal. So sure. delivery is really important in terms of prepping the animals, in terms of bringing the right animal, in terms uh-huh. of making sure that the animal is well supervised, and um, and then also you know reading the audience's reaction. If, if they're really scared, even if you're talking about it and then they're calming down, well, maybe if they're just about to calm down, maybe now is not the time to bring the animal right in their face. Um, right. <laughs> So yeah. it, I think it's one of those things that comes along with experience. And I was really fortunate that, um, you know, growing up, you know, my family did some shows and then um, I worked with other keepers that did shows. So I, I got to see literally hundreds of shows before I ever uh-huh. even did my first one. Um, sure. So a lot of things come, it's kind of like this um, innate, you know, ability for the shows that I, I feel that I'm, you know, fairly strong at it. So if you do, so I guess to answer the question, if you do it the right way and you educate people the right way, um, then it works out really, really well. But there's right. a fine line. And I know a lot of people that are really excellent with the animals, and they do pretty good shows, but it, you really have to be meticulous when it comes to shows. You have to, well, first you have to be careful, obviously, right? Because right. You're, you're around a lot of people, huge heat signatures, and um, this animal isn't seeing one individual here, one individual there. It's seeing this huge heat signature. Um, so to them, it look, practically looks like an elephant that they're facing. And which is extremely intimidating because I know if I was in front of an elephant, the first thing I would do is run. So right. <laughs> um, see this huge heat signature and um, they see these bodies moving. And then, um, so it is, you know, it's challenging for the animal. So you want to make sure you have an animal that you feel comfortable with and make sure that you're reading the body language of the animal. And, um, and yeah, so you want to make sure it's a positive experience for your audience, uh, for your animal and for yourself. And, you know, that could be challenging. It does definitely take time. So, you just have to do it the right way, and I think if you do it the right way, then you can um, educate people of this animal about retics, and uh, it right. works out really, really well. Cool. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, caging, um, and we're going to approach it from um, the adult point of view. So, you know, what's give us a rundown of what, how you approach it. Um, for caging, it depends really on what what's size retic we're talking about if we were talking about for example like you know a super dwarf or some of the really small dwarf species they may be fine in um you know a four foot enclosure when i say four foot enclosure i'm saying you know about four feet uh wide and about two and a half three feet deep and at least 18 inches tall um that would be fine or to have a to have an enclosure that's you know about six six feet wide three feet deep and like 18 inches tall I think that's fine for a lot of um, super dwarfs and, and definitely, you know, the, the dwarfs, especially if you're talking about the larger one, the six-foot enclosures. Um, I, I'm actually really happy recently because I see a lot of people that are using proper enclosures for their animals as opposed to the past where um, I remember when I was a teenager, we used to keep them in, in these rack systems. And we would even have, like, you know, considerably large animals in these, you know, big mm-hmm. rack systems. And then, you know, later on when we started using, you know, uh, larger enclosures, the animals just seemed to be, do better. Um, they seemed, uh, after the, the initial introduction, and then once they got used to the enclosure, they seemed more comfortable. They were eating better for us. They were cycling better. And usually when animals are cycling and, and you know, producing better, it means that they're less stressed and their body is, you know, uh, physiologically is doing well. 
and uh, resulting in a happier animal. And it's hard to, you know, correspond happiness with a retic. But um, if they're if they're eating better and they're cycling well, their health is just stronger. Then you know one could assume that you know they may be happier if there was a such thing with a retic. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It does. And then um, so we're talking about like for dwarfs and super dwarfs. So four foot enclosures, six foot enclosures. I know there's a lot of commercial ones out there. Animal Plastic <laughs> makes them. Visions are are really good. Uh, me personally, and over at Nerd, we do a lot of custom enclosures. Um, mm-hmm. And then, um, but yeah, so that's for the the smaller guys. For a lot of the smaller guys, you know, four footers are, are potentially fine when they're adults. Um, sometimes you'll need six footers depending on what type of dwarf we're talking about in terms of size. Um, for mid-sized animals, I some of them you could fit in six foot enclosures comfortably and they'll do well. But there definitely are occasions where you need something bigger. Um, where you'll need like an eight foot enclosure, for example. Um, mm-hmm. So when I say eight foot enclosures, I'm talking about you know eight feet wide, you know three feet deep, you know close to two feet tall, taller about two feet tall. Um, most of my retakes in my private collection have either six or eight foot enclosures, depending on how you know big they are. Um, mm-hmm. I've even known occasions where you know you have to use a ten foot enclosure, and that's for an exceptionally large animal. We're talking about you know the, you know the big Siluises, you know if they're like twenty three feet or or around that size, you may have to use a 10-foot enclosure. Uh, so 10 feet wide, about 4 feet deep, uh, maybe around 2 feet tall or so. But that's really an exceptional case. I mean, there's very, very few keepers I think you'll find that have to use a 10-foot closure, enclosure. Or there's some that probably may, maybe they do just because they prefer it or you know, whatever their preference is. But as a necessity, I don't think in general that most keepers would need a 10-foot enclosure for their animal. Um. So. I'm curious with as far as um you know with your your you're talking about the hook training or the or the paper towel training um do you prefer like sliding glass as opposed to you know like um open face glass yeah. yeah yeah I've always Some preferred retics. the um, the open doors for the research personally I've always preferred that um that being said there's not really many companies that are really making the open door style where you have, you know, the hinge and you just drop down the doors. I mean, most mm-hmm. of the ones that you're seeing that are commercially available are the sliding doors, which, which are fine. I know lots of keepers that use them and have no issue with them whatsoever. I just mm-hmm. think when I have the, the folding down doors in terms of feeding them, it's a, it's a bit easier in terms of me having access to the animals a little bit easier. I don't think it's a huge difference. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's to the point where I'd go out of my way and contact a commercial company asking me to make a customized one with the hinge doors. I don't think it's really mm-hmm. that serious, but do I think it's a little bit better? Yeah, in my opinion, it is. Um, it's just okay. worked out way better for me personally. And with the hook training, especially like you were saying, it works out way better. Okay. Um, and I guess I guess you have to think about when you have a big animal like that, getting it in and out of the enclosure. Uh, as far as you know, making that opening, um, is there any recommendations you have as far as that? And in terms of getting in the enclosure, well, if you have the doors with the hinges, that's just so much right. easier because you can just simultaneously have them both down and then easily place your animal in there. It goes to the other side of the enclosure usually. You close your doors, you're fine. Uh, right. Okay. With the sliding doors, if you have, you know, but, but here's the thing. Usually if you have a larger animal where it would be problematic, that means you also have a larger enclosure. So right. the, the glass sliding portion can be bigger. So when you push over that glass for that six- or eight-foot enclosure, that leaves you with a lot of leeway. Um, right. So for that, for putting back the animal, I don't think it's really a 
huge difference. Um, okay. I do think it's a little bit better with the hinge door zone. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, <clears throat> uh, what about, I'm curious, I heard somebody, I can't remember where I heard this, but I heard somebody talking about how retics are more arboreal than most people think. Do you, do you have any, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, experience with that? Uh, do you have a thought on that uh, as far as? Yeah. Uh, um, I would say, I mean, that's, that's a relative statement. I would agree if someone said, for example, that was um, quite arboreal considering its, its size. Um, I would definitely think so, especially for young animals. The young retics um, naturally will go up high to their, they feel safer up high. Um, even older retics, one of the first things we do if we have an animal where we, we place it in thinking mode, it's processing everything, and then we mm-hmm. pick it up, and then all of a sudden it says, you know what, maybe I'm a little bit uncomfortable. The first thing we do is put it right above your head. Once you put it right above your head, you can see an automatic change in the animal. The animal feels far more calm. Um, first off, they don't have a heat signature right in front of them. And then in addition to that, they're in a place of empowerment. They're high. Um, so, yes, they do like to be high. Um, I think it's much more so true when you have a younger animal, though, when you have, you know, your babies and juveniles. Um, in older animals, they tend to be, you know, quite a bit more terrestrial than their younger counterparts. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that being said, even bigger retics, like on occasion in my private collection when I had an animal get loose, um, they're all over the place. I'll find them at the top of racks. I'll find them, you know, close to the top of doors, things like that. So um, they're mm-hmm. athletic snakes, and they're really good climbers. Um, so, you know, as opposed to something terrestrial, like for, like a ball python, for example, where it's, you know, mm-hmm. very, very terrestrial animal. Obviously, it's capable of climbing uh, to a certain extent, but... Um, a lot of times you don't find them really high. With a retic, it's not uncommon if one gets loose or if you have one in your room for it to go, you know, pretty high. They're definitely capable of it at the very least. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that they're, I guess, semi-arboreal to a certain extent, especially depending on what um, what stage of life we're referring to, I guess. Okay. What about as far as, um, you know, I hear a lot of times when you're, especially with dwarfs or super dwarfs, as far as them, like, constantly, um, uh, what would be the word, like, going up, uh, I guess, or trying to, is it, are they trying to Climb. get out, or they're, con- they're like, yeah. constantly climbing? Uh, is that, you know what I mean? Am yeah. I saying that wrong? Okay. Yeah, no, that does happen with certain retics. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily always because they're, they're trying to climb. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it could be on certain occasions. A lot of times people will see the animals, you know, pacing the enclosure and just all over the top, the corners of the enclosure. Um, and that, that could be for a lot of different things. That could be um, um, searching for food and maybe the animal needs to, you know, get fed at that time. Um, that could be a stress factor as well where it's basically saying, you know what, I, I don't want to be in here right now. I need to get out. Um, it could be for breeding purposes. If it's a male that really wants to breed, he'll pace his enclosure, just like, you know, many other species. And for right. occasions like that, Assuming you have everything right, so you have an animal with a nice, clean enclosure, like they should always have, obviously, fresh water, and they're well-fed. And if they're, mm-hmm. for example, rubbing their faces, they sometimes they'll do it to an extent where they're searching their enclosure, and they're just rubbing their faces, on, especially the front portion of the enclosure. And they'll actually get these, uh, these like, either in- infections or they get inflammation at the very least on their face, especially their gums. And um, what we'll do usually is we'll put distractions in there. So say, for example, okay. you know, take, uh, something as simple as, like, crumpled newspaper. You throw uh-huh. a bunch of crumpled mm-hmm. newspaper in your enclosure. Um, 
and a lot of times that helps. They feel more at ease, and um, they feel a bit more distracted, and um, and then they calm down. And you'll notice after a couple sheds that, you know, the inflammation has gone away considerably. And then sometimes you just need to change enclosures. Sometimes if an animal is too small of an enclosure, for example, you put in, you know, a slightly larger enclosure, you throw some distractions in there in terms of the newspaper, and then it stops, you know, that constant seeking, you know, to get out. Um, but, yeah, so you definitely do notice animals searching their enclosure quite a bit, um, especially with some smaller ones, for all different kinds of reasons. Okay. All right. Now, when we talk about feeding, um, you know, uh, I, I, is, there, is there a right-size prey for these guys? I mean, is bigger better, or uh, how do you approach it? Yeah, so there's so many schools of thought on feeding retics. So what I'm going to say is my school thought, you know, based on you know, my experience in my own collection and, you know, at other facilities as well, I am not a big fan of um, feeding retics overly large meals or just, you know, stuffing my retics to capacity. I really like mm-hmm. them to grow at a, um, at a pretty, you know, moderate, consistent pace. Um, and sometimes I think this is, you know, pretty tough for keepers. Because it's exciting when you you know you hear you're gonna get this snake that's gonna get really big and that's you know so cool. That's one of the things you know that's so majestic about these animals. They get huge and impressive. So sometimes people they're kind of rushed. They're they're feeding their animal too frequently or too big of meals, and um, their animal grows and grows really really quickly. But if you overdo it, you're you're shortening the life expectancy of that animal. Um, so the way we usually feed them. Uh, we usually feed them about once a week, an appropriate size meal that puts, you know, a good size bulge in the animal. Um, when the animal's older, so this that's for babies and sub-adults, juveniles, you want to make sure they have a good size lump in them. And then sometimes for our older animals, we'll uh, put even bigger meals, and so not just something that has a little bit of a bulge. We'll, we'll up it up a bit. Um, but with the young retics, I really don't overdo it with the feeding. I think it's pretty taxing on them. Um, mm-hmm. There's been some, you know, pretty sad scenarios when, you know, about almost 20 years ago now, where I saw, you know, some retics that would, you know, pass away, uh, baby retics from getting fed too big of meals. I mean, there are some species that do really well with really huge meals, even when they're younger, potentially. Um, retics just aren't one of them. It's not, you know, it's not unheard of for someone to feed up too big of a meal to a retic and for it, you know, to have trouble digesting it, even with proper heat and a proper setup, plenty of water. And then, you know, the retake does, you know, eventually pass away. It talks it out of its body. You can't break it down. Um, so, yeah. So make sure you put a bowl in your animal. Feed your animal about once a week um, from basically a neonate up until it's about a juvenile. Once it reaches subadult size, so maybe like seven feet or so. Adulthood, um, we usually still feed them about once a week. Um, but we, pretty, we up it up. So maybe... Maybe beyond just a slight bulge, we you know maybe like 20% more than just a slight bulge, and that works out really well for us. And the frequency is going to vary too, because when they're older, um, you could feed them a bit less. We usually feed our females, for example, on the off season, about every 10 days, and then obviously once we're approaching breeding, I'm sure we'll talk about this later when we talk more about breeding. But the weeks right. leading up to breeding season, that's when we increase the frequency. And um, we also increase the size of the, the prey item too of the feed. So. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> um, 
And what about uh, what, what's your thoughts as far as overfeeding? I mean, it seems that uh, feeding snakes in general is the one thing that um, we can see that makes the animal he- uh, appear healthy. If it's eating, it's healthy. So you want to feed, feed, feed. <laughs> what's your thoughts when it comes to that? Is, is, is that something yeah, that could be bad? Yeah, definitely. It kind of relates back to what we were saying. I mean, I think it, it's pretty common to retics too. Because if you think about it, someone, you know, one of the reasons people get retics, you know, they're intelligent, they're agile, they may aesthetically mm. like the way they look. And one big factor usually for a lot of people is they get big. So naturally, if they get a smaller retic, they can't wait till it gets big. It's going to be so, you know, great and wonderful, and I want to get to that as soon as possible. So they just feed, feed, feed these animals, um, and they do grow. They grow really quickly. You could have, you know, a, a yearling animal grow several feet in one year, no problem. Um, but at the end of the day, having, you know, an overweight animal isn't really healthy for the animal at all. It's going to shorten the life expectancy of the animal. And then in addition to that, um, overweight animals, you know, in general, don't breed as well, especially males. Um, males aren't going to breed as well. And even the females, if they're overweight to a certain extent, you're not going to have proper follicle development. Um, so it really doesn't benefit anyone overfeeding your animal. And I do see that uh, sometimes, especially with newer keepers. And uh, you're going to have this big, impressive animal, um, but you want this big, impressive animal that's also at the same time healthy. So right. um, mm. once a week, I think, is fine. I mean, when you still want a baby animal, you can probably do it slightly more frequently than that. Um, right. As long as you're feeding it, you know, moderate, you know, reasonably sized meal. Um, but don't, you don't want to feed it, like, to the point where you're feeding it, like, every three days or anything like that. It's really it's taxing on their bodies. It's taxing on their organs. And you'll have this big animal that instead of living, you know, potentially 20 some odd, 30 years for you, maybe even longer in rare occurrences, may live only 15 years for you, 14 years for you. Um, right. So you want to do what's best, you know, for the animal, because that's obviously what comes first. You know, we, we love these animals and we want them to be in excellent health. And then everything else is afterwards. Breeding is afterwards. Um, everything else. Um, the first right. is the health of the animal. Yeah, I agree. And now, what is... Um... What are your thoughts as far as temps go? I mean, what what are the right temps for and your approach to keeping them healthy? Yeah. So for the for that's actually a good question. So for temps, um, retics are actually really forgiving in terms of temps. That being said, just because they're forgiving doesn't mean that you don't want you know ideal temps for them. So usually if we have a basking out of the enclosure, so a warmer side of the enclosure, we're talking about high 80s. Um, so maybe like 87, 88 degrees. Um, if you went up to 90 degrees, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Um, I usually don't I don't see the need to go much higher than that. I know some keepers that do go slightly higher than that, but in my opinion, it's just not necessary. Um, they do perfectly well in the high 80s on the warm end of the enclosure. And then um, on the other side of the enclosure, about 10 degrees cooler. So you're talking about, you know, very high 70s or, or low 80s. So say, for example, if you had 79 degrees, 80 degrees on one side and 80, 89 degrees on the other, that, that's perfectly fine. Um, and then you could have, you know, a deviation of like a degree or two. So just to make it simple, I usually tell people hot side 90, cool side 80. Um, I'm just being a little bit meticulous when I was giving my cooler examples right now. But, but yeah, so if I'm selling an animal to someone, I usually tell them, 80 for the cool side, 90 for your warm side, you should be all set. Uh, for right. technical about it, slightly cooler is, you know, maybe a slightly better, but it's not the end of the world. Give them at 80 and 90. They still could flourish quite well. 
Okay. Any thoughts uh, or anything that we should take into consideration as far as humidity or hydration? Yeah. So um, that, that's that's really good. Humidity, you really want to make sure it's nice and humid. Um, you know, obviously some of the animals have good sheds. And uh, in addition to that, even if they're having, like, reasonably good sheds, if you have low humidity on the animals, you can see that they're stressed out. Um, they, act, they act more jittery a lot of times. Um, they're just, just uncomfortable, especially if you've been reading the animals for a long time. So you want to make sure your humidity is, you know, around 70% or higher. Um, usually I don't see an issue with people having it too high for humidity, but obviously that's possible. You can have it too high, and then you'll have, like, mold development and, you know, fungal development, things like that. But um, think about it in terms of, um, for example, comparing it to, like, a ball python, something along those lines. You want it humid. You don't want to overdo it, but... Uh, they do appreciate the humidity. It results in nice sheds, results in a nice, calm animal uh, that feels comfortable. And in terms of the water, you always want to make sure your retake has water. I mean, that's a general good guideline pretty much for, for almost all animals, really. Um, mm, right. It's essential <laughs> to life. I mean, we're, we're, we're built, you know, primarily of water. And retakes love to drink. I have okay. some retakes that I'll put a water bowl in there, and it's just like if you just put a drain in there. It's as if once their face goes in there, there's like a plug that goes underneath the bowl, and bam, all the water's gone. <laughs> it's, really, wow. it's really impressive, um, especially wow. after they eat. I'll have females that, you know, they'll drink like two, three, four bowls of water. Um, even if their meal size isn't like, you know, huge, even if it's pretty modest-sized meal. Um, they right. do, you know, drink quite a bit, especially when you're talking about the, the larger retics. Uh, so you want to make sure they always have fresh water. And you want to make sure you keep an eye on it. I think sometimes people don't realize that because maybe they'll have, you know, a smaller animal that obviously, you know, needs less water for its body to function. And now you have this larger animal that's 16, 17 feet. And, you know, just like the animal gets, you know, larger meals, um, larger prey items, larger, larger feeds, they also require more water. Um, so you want to make sure you really keep an eye on that. And I, and I have seen that before where people will bring animals in and they're saying, well, my, my retic's acting off. And then it'll come in with sunken eyes, and then uh, the elasticity of their of their scales when you pull it, it just isn't there because they're dehydrated. And they'll have other animals, and they say, "Well, my other animals are fine." And the thing is, your other animals are a quarter of the size, so you just need mm. to up it, you know, for a larger animal, obviously. Right. And then one last thing before a uh, question I have before we get into breeding is. Um, what 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 are what do you have to think about and what do you use for heating and at, like I mean when you're heating say like uh, well we'll just say carpet python or a ball python or something like that typically you can have a hot spot that's just in the corner of a four foot cage which you know is maybe what um, I don't know ten inches twelve inches maybe at the most and um, when you're talking an animal that's you know twelve feet plus. You have to you have to give the, uh, that animal the ability to heat their whole body up. I mean, you know, you can't just put a spotlight on it. I would think. I mean, is this? It, it, what do you recommend as far as using for heat? Yeah, to catch, well, that's to um, that's actually something pretty interesting. So I'll tell you, you know, a couple schools of thought on that. So there, there are some people that use, um, you know, belly heat for their animals. In general, we don't. I really don't advise using overhead heat in terms of, like, lamps or anything like that for the retics uh, for many reasons. I mean, just, you know, right off the top of my head, it, it reduces humidity content because it speeds up the water particles in the air and then it exits your enclosure. 
so it evaporates, so it's going to decrease your um, your water content there. Um, you're talking about a nocturnal animal, so if you unless you have like a red bulb or something like that, it's you know kind of irritable to have bulbs in there. So we're usually talking about like basking, so actually underbelly people. So for the underbelly heat, people do use panels. Uh, a lot of times, these panels are potentially 18 inches wide, and they'll go the entire the entire depth of the enclosure, and um, then they'll have it hooked to a thermostat. So basically, similar to what you would do to a smaller species, where you have a heat panel in the back, just on a larger scale. Um, so there are people that do that, where they'll have these you know these wide panels that they may even have to customize, um, and they'll have it hooked up to a thermostat, and then they'll achieve 90 degrees on one side and you know, or 88 degrees or so, and then about 10 degrees cooler on the other. There are plenty of people that do that, and it works out really well. Um, they fluctuate their temperatures accordingly during breeding seasons, and, and it's perfect. Uh, that being said, there are a lot of keepers that actually have their retakes at ambient, and it actually works out well also if you do it right. Um, so say, for example, they'll have the heating element for their room, like an oil-filled radiator, for example. They'll have it to right. one side of their room, and if the and then they'll have one on each side of them. So when the animal goes towards that end of the enclosure, where it's closer to the um, oil-filled radiator, um, they'll, they'll get a bit warmer, obviously. And then if they go right. to the other side of their enclosure, it's cooler. So you're you're basically you don't have a direct heating element on the actual animal itself in terms of an enclosure. You're primarily operating off ambient you know temperatures in your room that you're accomplishing with heating elements for the room. That, I mean, if you do it the right way, it can work very, very well. I know lots of keepers that keep their their retics in ambient, and they have healthy animals that, you know, eat well, digest well, they cycle well, um, animals that don't appear jittery or stressed. Um, you just have to make sure you do it the right way um, because a the thermal gradient is important, obviously, for many reasons. Um, and, uh, but, yeah, so either the school of thought could potentially work. Um, for the past few years, I have been going off ambient, at NERD, a lot of times they go up ambient as well. Um, the only occasion that that alters is if you have a gravid female, then we'll put her on heat uh, to make sure that she moves forward um, with processing and, you know, pushing out the eggs at the end of her cycle. Um, but, yeah, ambient does work as well if you do it right. Does that does that description make sense to you guys what I was talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it does. I'm curious, what's the temperature that you shoot? I, I don't know if you said this or not, but what's the temperature you shoot for with ambient? With the ambient, it really just depends on the time of the year. So okay. say, for example, at the time of the year where I'm not um, really uh, breeding the retakes, where I'm just maintenance feeding mm. them, I'm feeding them, you know, once every 10 days or so, you do, you know, mid-80s, and that, that'll be fine. Um, so you can do, you know, between, you know, 83, 85 to 85 degrees, um, obviously it's going to fluctuate just based on the time of the day, uh, based on a lot of different factors. And then um, when you're breathing, which we'll talk about later, obviously you have to, mm-hmm. you have to drop that to stimulate follicle development. Because if you have a room, for example, um, and it's, you know, it's approaching 85 degrees or slightly higher than that, then you're really going to jeopardize your breathing. Because you're going to have females that ovulate far too soon. Um, you're going to lower the viability of sperm in males. You know, a lot of things happen, so. Okay. okay, cool. Well, I, I mean, I know you mentioned it, so why don't we just uh, let's jump into breeding now. I mean, what's your approach to, you know, cool down and all that fun stuff? Yeah. Um, so retics are great because I've known people that breed retics all, all times of the year. Um, I mean, that's that's true okay. of a lot of different species. There's always, you know, outliers, right? I mean, uh, I don't care what species you're 
your breeding, you always hear that one exceptional case where someone breeds it off season. I think that's even mm-hmm. more so true with retics um, because um, their their response, the temperature cues, is actually really sensitive. Um, because even for example, if we have you know a room that we're having in you know in the mid 80s, let's say, and we have a temperature drop consistently of you know two or three degrees over the course of several days, a lot of times we'll have females that start cycling just off that you know minor alteration. Um, so they really cue into these temperature fluctuations really well, and they're actually really sensitive uh, to subtle drops. So you really don't need a significant drop a lot of times to necessarily make your, your animals start cycling. Um, so we, um, we, we do decrease it gradually because you don't want to take your animal that you had at, you know, 85 degrees and bam, you know, put at 77 degrees, 76 degrees. Um, because it's, it's stressful on the animals. Animals that get stressed, have depressed immune systems. Animals with depressed immune systems get, you know, infections. Um, but, yeah, they are really sensitive uh, to temperature drops. So once you, you know, have slight alterations, you'll already see it. You'll see animals that go off feed, for example. You'll have females that, you know, were, were pounding food in August for the six weeks leading up to breeding season. Um, you were increasing the frequency of their meals from where off-season they were getting fed maybe every 10 days. And now six weeks prior to breeding season, you're feeding them, you know, once a week. And you're feeding them, you know, larger meals. Not considerably mm. larger. You want to feed in moderation. Um, but, you know, slightly larger meals. This calorie intake in conjunction with the, with the temperature drop really just cues their body. And they're, um, they're really, really good at triggering cycled, um, cycling, even with these, these subtle cues. Um, but, yeah, so you decrease the, uh, the temperature, and a lot of times you'll see animals go off feed or you'll palpate your animals and see that they have, you know, strong uh, follicle development. Um, we have ultrasounds both in my, my private um, location and both at the oh. shop as well. And uh, we all sound the animals, and you'll see, you know, good follicle development. And you can see it almost immediately. It's, it's really interesting. I've bred a lot of different species over my life, been really fortunate. And I'm always impressed mm. by how in tune the retics are um, physiologically. You know, the temperature drops, <clears throat> excuse me, and to these, um, mm. these calorie increases as well to, to trigger their body to say, you know what, now it's time to breed. Now it's time to cycle. Now it's time to move forward. It's, it's really impressive. That's very cool. And, and having the um, ultrasounds, have you found that is something that really helps? Like, would there be a few females that you would have totally missed that they were uh, developing follicles if you didn't have the ultrasounds? Uh, definitely, for sure. Um, because, like I was saying, like some females that we'll have will go off feed. Not all females uh-huh. that will necessarily go off feed at all, though. We'll have females that have excellent follicle development um, and, you know, they eat the entire time. <clears throat> usually you could see when they're building. So usually something that's quite obvious. And when you're around mm-hmm. the retics a lot, um, you don't even have to use the ultrasound you know, majority of the time and you know exactly what's going on. But you always do have that one outlier. Well, you'll have a, a retic that's, you know, eating consistently for you. You don't see much mm-hmm. building in terms of her follicle development. And when I say building, I see where she's carrying her weight. So I look, you know, past her mid-body and then I see a thickening. And it's a thickening in a certain way. It's not. It's not thickening like, like a bulge from eating or even like an ovulation thickening. This is a very distinct look that they'll have. And they're basically, you see that their follicles are developing. Um, not, they don't always look that way. So what we'll do is if they're not showing the obvious cues, if I don't have an animal that's going off feed, if I don't have an animal that is obviously visually building follicles, um, if I don't have an animal that's cool side seeking or wrapping her bowl to stimulate follicle development, then I'll say, you know what? Let me palpate this animal. Uh, with retakes is actually 
pretty easy to, to, to palpate most three ticks. And on mm-hmm. occasion that is challenging, all we do is we bring them over to the ultrasound. Um, in general, what we'll do is we'll, we'll scan the females, and when we see um, follicles that are around maybe around 20 millimeters or so, that's how they're measured in, in millimeters metrically, and um, and they have good shape, then we'll, then we'll say, you know what, she's all set. We could pair her up, you know, with a male. Um, sometimes people will look on ultrasound. It's obviously tough for you guys to potentially visualize it without like a visual example, but you can right. get an ultrasound. You can have a follicle that's 20 millimeters, for example, but it's misshapen. You could tell that her body's starting to break it down. So maybe at mm-hmm. one point it was actually larger, and now her body's saying, you know what, it's time for me to come back from cycling. Um, these weren't fertilized or something went wrong in terms of temperatures, and now I'm going to break down these follicles. And you'll see irregular edges on the follicles. You'll see discoloration of follicles where it doesn't have regular coloration, and it's obvious that, that something's wrong. Um, but I'm talking about if you have a nice follicle that's 20 millimeters um, and has nice shape, nice color, then usually you're in good shape. And sometimes you do have to use ultrasound. Not, most of the time you don't, but on occasion you do. Um, we use it for a lot of our other animals. Um, like um, at home, I use it for a lot of my monitors. And um, at there they use it for a lot of the monitors also. Water monitors, I'm saying. Yeah. So introductions. I mean, is there a certain way you do it? Is there a certain thing you look for? Or do you just kind of open the female's cage and salute the boy as he goes in? So. <laughs> yeah, that's um, introduction with Rethic. It's, it's really interesting. Um, it's a really cool experience and it's cool because it's really dynamic. It's not, uh, even the introductions with them, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. The reason being, I mean, there's so many reasons. The first reason, you want to make sure that your female is uh, is ready to go. What I mean by ready to go is that she's having that good follicle development. Um, because sometimes if you place a male in an enclosure um, with a female that she's not really having that cycling taking place yet, she may not be receptive. And the issue with um, a female retic not being receptive is that sometimes they could be pretty assertive with the males. And when you have an animal that's that size being assertive with a, with a male that may be half her size, uh, sometimes it's not necessarily, you know, a good scenario to be in, so... Um, but yeah, so you want to make sure that she has good follicle development, that she's showing all the good signals, that she's seeking the cool side of her enclosure, uh, that mm-hmm. she's, you know, bull wrapping, that you see that she's building, or if you ultrasound her and she has good follicle development, then you could approach and say, you know what, I want to put a male in there. Um, that being said, as a side note, sometimes actually putting in a male in there will actually stimulate follicle development, but that's, that's a different scenario. But yeah, so when you put the males in, you want to do the um, the same technique that we use in terms of hook training, whether we do it with actual hook or paper towels, which I prefer paper towels. Uh, we usually let the female know, look, something's going to happen right now, and it's not going to be food. So <laughs> please don't eat this boy. So <laughs> Please don't so, bite him. Yeah, that's all you want. Please don't hurt him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because the, the worst thing with that, you know, one of, the, one of the, um, the saddest things that could happen is imagine it's the middle of the day, so we're wide awake, but these animals are nocturnal, so they're sleeping. And now you throw mm-hmm. a male in there. The male touches her, and she has her hair trigger response because she was dead asleep. And bam, just like she would in the wild if uh, if um, she was on a game trail and a prey item came across and touched her, now this male retic touched her, bam, she grabs him and wraps him. Um, I've seen Ugh. this happen. I've seen it even – I remember being um, a teenager and seeing this happen and having to deal with it, and, and it was tough. I mean, I've dealt with it, you know, a few times since then. And I've gotten better at it, but it's never a good sight to see. But 
No. But, yeah, so you want to make sure that the female knows, like, okay, we want to make sure she's awake and she realizes that she's not going to get fed. Um, that's one of the first things we do. And then um, after we do that, we'll, we'll put the males in. And even before you put the males in, there's a few things you want to make sure you take care of. Um, for one, before you grab that male, you want to make sure that you didn't touch another male um, because they obviously have really evolved um, Jacobson organs and they could, they could smell, so to speak, the, the other male on you. And they can get mm. pretty assertive. A male retics, you do not have male retics together once they're, you know, over three feet long. Once they're basically, you know, sub-adults, you don't put them together. Then They don't play nice, so to speak. Um, it's not like some other species where people get um, ball pythons, for example, and you put, a, you know, two males together, and they'll get kind of rowdy and push each other around, get their testosterone, mm. testosterone well up high, and then you introduce them to females, and it could be helpful. If you put two male retics together, uh, a lot of things are going to happen, but none of it's probably going to be helpful. Um, so they're probably going to. So no, them. no combat with them. Like, because yeah. I mean, you just said like, because with carpet pythons, if you have a a boy that's not really doing anything, you can throw another boy in there. They'll combat, like you said, push each other around, and then you hook the loser out. And then it's usually with the breeding. So if you were to attempt to attempt combat with two male retics in the same cage as a female retic, it, it, it's not ending well is what you're saying, right? Exactly. I mean, I, in general, none of the breeder males ever go together. I mean, I know people that use techniques, and even I've used techniques in the past where I'll use, like, sheds of males and put it in a male's mm-hmm. enclosure to kind of boost his yeah. testosterone levels prior to introduction. I mean, techniques like that, um, I know other breeders that use it. It works out, you know, pretty well for a lot of people. But actually physically having two... Uh, ready-to-go breeder males in one enclosure, um, they're going to fight, and oftentimes um, it doesn't end up well. You'll have an injure, uh, injured retic, and uh, they can even critically injure each other. Um, so it's, it's just not a good idea. So, gotcha. But, yeah, so you want to make sure that – so then now, that being said, um, there are mm-hmm. these, these amazing animals that you're dealing with. You want to make sure that you're not agitating them. You want to make sure you don't smell like a male retic. Um, so – assuming that you weren't touching a male retic previously and assuming that um, there's no type of interaction with sense or anything like that, now you can introduce your male once you basically make sure your female's awake. You knew that your female was cycling and you made sure she was awake and she's aware that she's not going to get fed. Now you can introduce your male. Um, when you place your male in, there's a lot of different techniques people use. Um, you'll see some people that um, they'll, I don't want to say roughhouse, because that's not really a good term. Uh, what they'll do is they'll, um, maybe you like wiggle the tail a bit of the male just to boost those testosterone levels. Um, I honestly don't do that very much. I feel like it's really not necessary. I have males that I put in without really physically manipulating them at all, and they breed exceptionally well for me. That is a technique that I've seen a lot of keepers use. Um, so I guess basically make sure your female is ready to go in terms of follicle development. Read your animal well. Um, ultrasounds are always helpful if you're kind of questioning where she's at. Um, and then in addition to that, when you're doing introductions, make sure she's aware that an introduction is taking place, not a feeding. And then when you handle your mail, take those precautions prior, introduce your mail, and then, um, you know, then biology, and they, then biology takes its thing, and then they copulate. And uh, we'll talk more about that next, too, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's uh, kind of where we're going with that one. So, uh, obviously, you've noticed that she's kind of ovulated. How much time do you have to get the boy in there um, relatively, and then what do you do when you start seeing locks and stuff like that? Okay. Yeah, so with the um, with the retics, it's, it's really interesting. The whole 
I mean, retics in general, they're extremely unique animals, and there's so many things that are interesting about them. And breeding season is, like, one of the most exciting things when it comes to the species. So blocks with retics, uh, a lot of times they'll, you don't even necessarily see them because they're really mm-hmm. short. I mean, there's a lot of species that they may lock, you know, literally for hours. Uh, retics mm-hmm. a lot of times aren't like that. You'll have male retics that may lock for, like, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And a lot of times, a lot of this activity is overnight. So it's not uncommon at all uh, for you to pair up a male and a female to potentially see some courting activity with the boy and not necessarily see any lots. And then, you know, a few weeks later, uh, you have an extremely gravid female or you see your female ovulate uh, prior to that. Okay. So they're kind of little ninjas like that. They're very, you know, seclusive <laughs> and, and it's, it's a quick, it's a quick breeding. Um you had a question before that, too, not just in terms of uh, the, the copulation, right? Did you have a question before that? Yeah, we had the uh, the um, how how much time do you have to get the male in with the female after you've noticed that? Is it kind of like uh, you already said about the um, every once in a while you'll catch a foggle as it's breaking down. Do you still got time to throw the boy in there, or is it uh, kind of almost a done deal after that? Yeah, um, a lot of times. Um, once a follicle starts breaking down, if you put the male in there, they, they usually don't revert and go back up. So say, for example, if you have a follicle that's, you know, going up to 20 millimeters, 21 millimeters, and, um, you know, nothing really happened in terms of introductions prior, you missed the breeding. And then, um, mm-hmm. and then you see it breaking down. So even if the size is the same, you see that actually the follicle degrading. A lot of times, honestly, you've probably missed that particular breeding. Uh, it usually doesn't go back up afterwards, at least, you know, not in my experience. And um, certainly not at the experience that we've had in Nerd also. But but that being said, um, if the female does have strong follicles, she could potentially, with proper conditions, when I say proper conditions, proper temperatures, um, you know, proper cooling down, proper feeding regimen, she could potentially, you know, hang there for, you know, for, for a few weeks. Uh, but that being mm-hmm. said, it's not as if you'll have several months to breed this female. Uh, this female has follicle development. You really want to jump on it as soon as possible. Um, because even though... Um, even though they do hang there for a decent amount of time, it's just not going to last forever. Right. So with, with, with feeding, I mean, uh, do you, when you put the retics together, is it now that food is completely done shut off or will you separate for feeding? Will you kind of feed some pairs that might not, you might not be seeing any action out of, or is it just strictly no food for these guys? No, we do feed them even throughout the breeding season. We're feeding. I mean, a lot of them will refuse ma- meals. A lot of the males may potentially refuse mm-hmm. meals. Well, not to the extent of some other species, but uh, a lot of males may potentially refuse. A, l- a lot of females may refuse, especially depending on where she is in her cycle. Uh, but we generally do introductions for a few days. So, say for example, we'll do them introductions on Monday, um, and then we'll mm-hmm. have them. Well, actually, um, this season we've actually done this start on Fridays. So we'll have them introduced on Friday. We'll leave them together for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and then probably around Monday morning we'll separate them. So they'll usually be together for about, you know, three days or so, and then we'll have them separated for four days. Um, and then when they're separated, that's when we'll offer them food. Uh, and a lot of them may, you know, refuse the, the meal item. And uh, that works out really well for us, and I've done that for many years, even prior to going to NERC. Okay. So obviously throughout the year you're feeding normal, and then you, you boost the food, right before you go down, and then you're kind of just offering to see who might take throughout all of breeding season. Okay. Um, cool. The calorie intake that we were talking about before, that's, that's really important mm-hmm. because along with the temperature cues, 
um, in terms of like in that, that subtle temperature drop. I mean, a lot of times we do you know, more drastic temperature drops than that, even though it may not necessarily be necessary at all scenarios. Um, the calorie intake, once their body is basically informed, look, I have all these calories coming in over a given period, so over, you know, 20 days, instead of me getting, you know, this amount of calories, I have like 40% more because you're feeding them, you know, a bit more frequently and you're giving them slightly bigger meals. Those two cues, the temperature um, cue and the calorie cue, really do convince mm-hmm. their body, you know what, I could dedicate my energy towards cycling, and it's really important. And there's also something to be said about lighting cycling. Um, we have natural lighting coming into the room, so they have a very natural cycling of lighting, um, both at mm-hmm. Merritt and at my private location. Um, so I really don't have to adjust it too much, but I do know keepers that you know, maybe have them in an area that doesn't have a natural light cycling that do adjust that, and they say it makes a difference. I don't see why it would make that much of a difference with retics in particular, but I have heard some keepers claim that, though. Okay. So now that we've gone through all this stuff, we get the eggs. Um, How do you go about with the egg care? How do you set them up uh, for both um, artificial and maternal incubation? So we usually uh, don't do maternal incubation. basically because of, of, of two reasons, really. Uh, one is the female, because uh, the sooner we could remove the eggs and artificially incubate them, the sooner we could have her enclosure cleaned up, we could clean her down so she doesn't have a mm-hmm. sense of the eggs on her, and then we could get her back on feed and get her you know, to a good weight. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons we do it. So it's just to, to reduce the stress on the female. Uh, obviously, initially, removing the eggs is stressful, but then afterwards, it's a reduction of stress. And then two... Uh, in terms of the actual eggs, the neonates, uh, the survival rate and the hatch rate is going to be, you know, higher uh, if you're artificially incubating the eggs as opposed to leaving them uh, maternally incubated. So we pretty much mm-hmm. always um, artificially incubate the eggs in the incubators. Uh, we set them up either on vermiculite or hatchrite, which is, you know, a commercial brand of, I think, I believe perlite mixed with, like, water crystals for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. Then we'll incubate them at about 90 degrees, and about 88 days later the neonates come out. Uh, once the first one pips, we usually drain the fluid from the egg uh, to make sure that we have none that are drowning uh, or to actually prevent them from drowning, rather. And that works out really well for us. Very cool. Um, are retic babies more prone to drowning? That That's one of the rumors that I've heard throughout the years is that, you know, retics are somewhat notorious for pipping, going back in the egg, and then just drowning in the fluids that are in there. Yeah, I've all, I've often wondered the same thing, but the thing is, is that usually when I'm doing this comparison, I'm comparing it to animals that have way less eggs. So I'll, for example, compare it maybe to a ball python. Well, you know, you mm-hmm. talk about a smaller sample size. So maybe, you know, and so we have a retic that has, you know, potentially 40, 50 eggs or, you know, for a good size clutch, and you have, a, you know, another animal that may have five eggs, um, obviously, even if it's, you know, 10% of the eggs that, you know, potentially would get drowned, which, which is not that high. It's far lower than that. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be, you know, more. I mean, that's my idea behind it. I don't think it's necessarily a higher propensity. I just think that you simply have more babies, so it's more likely just in terms of numbers. But it is possible. I definitely have seen it before where retake babies have drowned, um, and that's why we drain all the eggs. Okay. Better safe than sorry. So um, now we got the little guys. How do you go about setting up the neos? And then uh, what's your approach to kind of getting them started? Yeah. 
so with um with the with the fresh babies uh after they have their first shed um they'll get set up in um usually in the freedom breeder racks so we're talking about the the open system racks uh we'll set them up in in the long boxes um I don't remember the exact dimensions offhand, but most keepers are familiar with the long boxes um we'll set them up in there um or we'll set them up in um smaller containers at times uh the retake babies they seem to do better in smaller containers they're they're less stressed and they're more likely to eat. Um, when people have them as pets, sometimes they'll put them in um, tanks, for example, and sometimes it doesn't work out well. The animal feels exposed, low humidity issues, things like that. But, yeah, so, for example, we're talking about a normal scenario where we're setting up our babies in the Freedom Breeder rack systems or ARS rack systems in the long box. Mm-hmm. Once they have their first shed, we introduce and we introduce the feeder. And for the first few meals, we'll do live items. And then after we have them eating consistently, that's when we'll introduce thought items. And when I say live items, usually it's going to be uh, mice. Either it'd be a, a hopper mouse or a small adult mouse. Um, we usually don't put equivalent-sized rats in there because it seems like the movement really doesn't entice them. Um, the movement that you have associated with, like, hopper mice or small mice, the movement along with the smell most likely really entices them. And then we have a really high success rate with the, with the actual hatchlings going after the food. Um, I mean, once in a while you'll have ones that are stubborn. Um, we'll have to potentially... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, offer different types of food, and you'll have some that, you know, prefer rats. You'll have some that they don't want to eat mice, and they'll prefer rats. And it doesn't happen often, but it does happen on occasion. Um, and it's rare that we have baby retics that don't want to eat for us. Um, on the okay. occasions that we do, um, then, you know, we potentially assist feed when we put the feeder, you know, initially in the beginning of their mouth, and then they'll take it down the rest of the way. But they're, they're really, you know, pretty involved. They have pretty good feeding responses, so we usually don't have too much of an issue. And the thing is with baby retakes, even if they're uh, troublesome feeders, once they have their first meal, they just keep on going and going and going. Um, so they just need that, that first meal, and then it's pretty much they're just on this path where they just, you know, they're usually eating machines for the most part. Very cool. Now, I know we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier that retakes kind of almost have this like want to climb have you ever put perches in with baby retics that may have been trouble feeders um not perches really but we will put um uh, again the, the crumpled newspaper we'll put crumpled newspaper mm. in there and either if they're if they're scared they'll hide underneath it or sometimes they'll actually climb on top of it and it seems to help out considerably I mean, we do that with all, you know, whenever we do have problem feeders, that's one of the first things we'll do. And that usually will mm-hmm. not the problem feeders, probably in half. So if we have maybe, I don't know, let's say 10 troublesome feeders, we'll modify their enclosure. And then once we modify it, we make it half to eat. And then we're only dealing with five animals that are having issues eating as opposed to 10. Um, so not really right. perches, but we do put things there in their enclosure. That definitely does help out. Very cool. It's just kind of weird. It's like, you know, baby retics come out and you're like, a mouse. And it's like, that's like, you know, 12 month old carpet python food is that they're eating like right out of the egg. It's like, there's some big babies. So um, <laughs> that's kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah. No, and then um, certain locales, you know, have babies that are, you know, pretty considerably size strong. I mean, there's definitely a difference in the size of the babies. Um, you know, smaller yeah. females tend to lay smaller eggs and therefore have smaller neonates and get smaller prey items. But then you'll have some big, you know, mainland females that have these big eggs and they have these babies that, you know, considerably larger. So, uh, um, 
Uh, real, I don't know if you hit on this, uh, but what's the average uh, hatch time for eggs, for retake um, eggs? Usually it's in maybe about 88 days or so. It really just depends on the temperatures you have and the humidity in your incubator. I know some okay. people that um, they'll have their temps a bit lower, so instead of having around 90 degrees or so, they may have it at 88 just to, you know, mm-hmm. bring in deviations that they have, like, fluctuations during incubator just to be safe and rather be safe than sorry, kind of, which is great. And a lot of times those will take, you know, a bit longer to hatch out. Um, I've noticed that those seem to hatch out a little bit bigger, too, because you're, um, you're ensuring that they have, you know, a bit more time to absorb the yolk, it seems like, and you have um, less animals that are having issues with retention of the yolk. So, okay. but yeah, about 88 days to answer your question. 88 days, okay. Cool. Um, I think uh, we did have a, a question from uh, Chris from uh, Mystic Reptiles, um, and he had a, he had a couple questions that were, uh, you know, uh, in this uh, email he sent me, um, and it kind of ties into what we're going to talk about next: morphs and uh, you know the market and that kind of stuff. So let me just see if I can uh, pull up his uh, thing here. Um, Blah, blah, blah. I was looking forward to the show. Um, yeah, he's a good person. Chris is a great guy, by the way. I, um, <laughs> oh, yeah, we, 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 we is really, really on point. He's very well organized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like Chris a lot. We, uh, I got to hang out with him at Tinley Park um, uh, last year, and um, he's been on the show a couple times. Um, and I know he's big time in the retic, so he's probably loving this show. So. I don't know. He 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 puts stuff like uh, you know, what as far as uh, the retic market prices, what's hot, stuff like that. Um, he doesn't really know anything about your personal collection, but of course, nerd approaches their breeding as uh, business. Uh, retics breeding earlier, uh, our males breeding earlier, and females breeding at three. Housing uh, adult girls in cages, six foot cages instead of eight. Um, if you have time, he would be interested to hear his take on breeding smarter to avoid flooding the market with low-value posset normals, tigers, etc. Um, and uh, talking about maybe the resulting in overproduction of retics in the U.S. and where do they all go. And also your point of view um, on what's the most important thing for keeping them healthy and breeding them, which I, I think you've Kind of got that one. Um, <laughs> I mean, we did the whole yeah. show on that um, one. Yeah. And what he thinks the outlook is for retics in the hobby, and what would be some good investment projects right now. All right. So good, there were like good. twelve questions there. Let's yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the market Christ, first for dude. a bit because I want to yeah, make yeah, sure yeah. we touch on that. Um, sure. The market. I mean, with any um, with any animal in general, not just reptiles, it's always you know a sensitive subject, but it's something that deserves mention, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. so the market for retics right now, I think is in fair condition. Uh, what I mean by fair condition is that, you know, in the past, a few years ago, uh, the market was quite strong. Then we had a a lot of people producing, you know, some really nice animals in their private collection. I was really, really impressed and that, and that was great. Um, so then the ban comes along. So things were slowing down prior to the ban, um, in terms Mm -hmm. of, you know, animals that were moving and things like that. And once they announced the ban, you had, you know, individuals that were, you know, were panicking and you had a lot of, you know, consumers that were saying, you know what, I always wanted to retake and now it's the time I have to buy it. And then on the other side, you had 
um, you know, sellers, you have people with collections saying, you know what, I hate to part with these animals, but I have to. So then you have this huge spike in sales um, just in that time period from when they announced the band until when it was actually implemented. And now afterwards when we have, you know, we were successful with the injunction, uh, luckily, for, uh, with, uh, along with the help of U.S. ARC. And, um, and once we were pa- past, the, past the injunction, now we've kind of, you know, plateaued uh, with sales. So sales are always going to be consistent for quality collections, I always say. Um, because I have a lot of people that will tell me is that, you know, they're, they're really concerned, um, you know, about sales and this and that and producing that. So for quality collections where you have, you know, variety in your collection, you have strong genes, you have interesting projects, you have unique projects, um, and you're, you know, producing, you know, intelligently. What I mean by intelligently is um, like, like Kevin does, for example. Kevin's really meticulous about his breedings. He wants to make sure that we have certain breedings that are going to result and, you know, a decent amount of stuff for our, our retail store that we have that, um, that's in the price point that works well for uh, the average consumer to have, like, you know, a tiger as a pet, uh, a tiger reticulated python. Um, and then we want our high-end stuff. So you want to make sure that you have a, a good variety in terms of the whole spectrum, and you want to make sure that you have um, something different, something unique. I mean, just because, for example, a phantom platy tiger, you know, one of my favorite combos, um, it, it's great. But just because, you know, one, you know, looks amazing doesn't mean that you have to make, you know, 100. Um, so overproduction, that, that leads to the second point. Um, overproduction, in, in my opinion, in the opinion of most reputable keepers, is a bit of an issue right now uh, with reticulated pythons. Um, so, uh, I mean, Nerd is a perfect example, and even, you know, my private collection. Having more retics um, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, content of collection. Uh, in my opinion, it's far better to have, um, you know, a, a moderate size to small collection, but to have, you know, strength in the individual animals. So you have, you know, animals that interest you, animals that when you look at them, you're like, you know what, that's a pretty animal. I like looking at this animal. I think other people will like having it in its collection. And realizing mm-hmm. that just because you like it doesn't mean that you have to make 100 of it. Um, so I think a lot of keepers um, are great. A lot of keepers realize this, especially people that have been doing it for a long time. So we're not talking about, people, about the average keeper. The average keeper is aware of the market. Um, they realize that you don't want to overproduce and saturate the market. Uh, they realize that you want to have diversity in your collection. You want to produce unique animals that are desirable for you, so you enjoy it and you have fun, and that also people want to buy. Um, and, a, and a lot of keepers do that. But on occasion, you may potentially have keepers that they're producing a bunch of retics and they may not put much planning into their breedings and they're just pumping out tons and tons of retakes and they're pumping out a bunch of pot heads uh, for recessive traits that they didn't even really, you know, think about prior that they were going to produce that many. Um, and they're having these nice combinations potentially, but they're producing so many of them that now they're going to have to cut their prices uh, because they've saturated the market so much. And then they're going to jeopardize, you know, uh, the pricing of these animals. So most keepers don't do this, but overproduction is a big problem that I think we're seeing, um, especially with certain combinations. Um, and then along with that comes, you know, the significant drop. So if you, for example, have this four-gene phantom combo, which is, you know, an amazing animal, you know, worth every single penny, and now you have so many people that are producing the same exact animal and they're producing a huge amount of them, um, someone's going to drop their prices um, to make a quick sale. And then a lot of times this causes this cascade effect, this domino effect. And now this animal that is worth every penny at such and such price point 
all of a sudden in a short period of time is going for half that amount, and in some cases even less than that. Um, we've seen this happen with other markets. I mean, there's, it's not as if other markets aren't plagued by these dilemmas of overproduction and lack of diversity yep. and a lack of uniqueness. I mean, it happens all across the board. Uh, mm-hmm. In the past, a few, I'm not talking about a few short years ago, this really wasn't an issue because you didn't have as many private collectors producing these high-end animals. Uh, you pretty much, you know, had, you know, the, the big breeders that are producing the, the really cool stuff, and then you had, you know, other breeders that are producing nice stuff, but just not at that level. Uh, I'm right. really happy to see it. so many collectors now in both, you know, big businesses and small collections producing quality animals. It's, it's really, really exciting. Uh, the double-edged sword is you want to make sure that people are um, conscientious of what they're doing, making sure that they're not, you know, overproducing retics in general, and then even more specifically reproducing the same projects over and over and over. Um, and being aware of price points, um, you know, just because, you know, the animal gets you, um, you know, a few hundred dollars now doesn't necessarily mean you should maybe sell it for that much. Maybe you should value your collection more and value that animal more. Um, it's going to be better for you and it's going to be better for the market. So it's going to be better for all the keepers. Um, a lot of times when you cut your prices and you overproduce simultaneously, um, it's just really going to jeopardize the market. and It's not going to be to anyone's advantage. You're hurting the, you know, the community, the market, and you're hurting yourself long-term in my opinion. But like I said, most breeders don't do that. Um, it's it's usually you know, only only one or two here and there, but it usually only takes you know a very small amount to jeopardize the market. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You do see that across the uh, the board. I mean, that it happens mm-hmm. with uh, you know uh, we've seen it with carpet Everything. pythons. Uh, we've seen it with ball pythons. You know, it's uh, it's 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 just the way it goes, I guess. You know, you just have to be. I think. I don't know if this applies to, I would assume this is kind of what you're saying, but it seems that the the people that focus on something and, you know, really try to fine tune it um, to really make top end specimens um, seem to be the ones that, uh, that, you know, have the most success when it comes to uh, being able to move their animals and, and command the prices that they want for them. Because, you know, I mean, if you want, and again, I don't know if it, it, it goes over into retics, but if you want, like, you know, I'll use jungle carpets as an example. If you want really top notch jungle carpet, you know, you want something with good bloodlines and uh, you know, uh, yellow and black is, you know, crazy. Uh, You know, you're going to go to a specific person for that. So I would imagine that's the same in, in, with retics as well, right? I mean, people that are definitely, you know, like definitely. yourself, There's nerd. A, yeah. So for example, if um, if someone wants to get you know orange ghost stripes, everyone that's really into the industry knows exactly where to get them. You know, one uh, in terms of quality ones, you know, good quality orange ghost stripes in terms of you know a traditional look to them, and and even if they want you know ones a bit more unique than that. So everyone knows where to go for these certain morphs where you've had individuals that, that lie and breed them to an extent that's you know, just really impressive. Um, so you definitely do have the lion breeding um, for sure. And, and just, that goes back to what we were saying before, um, you know, quality collections always prevail. So if you have uh, individuals mm-hmm. that are producing, you know, unique, impressive animals, that you're producing, you know, these nice lion bred animals that regardless of the genetic mutation are just, you know, strong examples, unique examples, of that morph. And, you know, usually those can prevail because people know where to get, especially with social media. Um, you could just, you know, at, at the comfort of your home, you could post your animals and people could see, you know, the quality of their collection. 
Um, so, yeah, that, that's always definitely true. And I, I think, like I said, again, it goes back to, you know, quality collections, and they always prevail in markets. And luckily, um, for the most part, you know, individuals that, you know, don't necessarily plan out accordingly or don't put the quality and, and content into collection, usually those aren't the individuals that have longevity. Um, you know, most of the, the reputable keepers that have this longevity uh, really do go for, for content of collections. Yeah, I, yeah, that that's that makes sense. Um, so, okay, so we're in overtime now. So now we're just recording. We're not live anymore. So uh, people will come back and listen to this uh, tomorrow when they're you know, downloading yeah. the podcast and stuff. But um, I wanted to make sure that we we get into some of the exciting morph projects that you're working with personally. Um, mm-hmm. You know, maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, you know some of uh, some of the things that you're working with, uh, and and since you know uh nerd is well known for the calorie tick um i thought maybe you could hit on that and tell us a little bit about what's going on genetically with that so, but first start with uh what you got going on yeah so uh, it's actually um yeah, i can actually kind of answer in that both scenarios and you know simultaneously because a lot of what i have in my collection is you know similar to what we have at nerd and i actually do that intentionally because i want my projects to line up well uh, you know, Kevin mm-hmm. and I, we often collaborate. I may, you know, be raising up a male that's, you know, valuable, uh, you know, to pair up with some of his females or maybe, I, you know, or maybe vice versa. Um, so we do a lot of times have, you know, similar projects. I mean, there's some that I don't take part in. For example, I don't have jaguars in my particular collection, even though I think they're great. Um, so in my collection specifically, I work with a lot of orange ghost stripes. Um, I have a lot of holdbacks. I have uh, orange ghost stripe head albinos. I have um, a lot of visuals like Golden Child uh, double heads, so it'll be head albino, head orange ghost stripes. And a lot of these are, you know, animals I've been raising up for quite some time. So actually this upcoming year and the following year, I'm having um, a lot of females that are approaching breeding age. So I hope to be producing a lot of orange uh, ghost stripe combinations. Um, That's honestly my favorite simple recessive. Um, And with my limited space that I have in my private facility, um, I want to make sure that I really hone in on animals that I like. And that, that's really important for people to do in the collection because sometimes, you know, people mm-hmm. name off animals that they have, and it's like, you know, I have a, you know, a, a sun tiger, blah, 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 and they'll, they'll list off the gene. And I'm like, oh, that's great. How, how does it look? Do you like the way it looks? And they're like, oh, yeah, it looks okay. I'm like, well, you want the animal to look nice. Yeah. You want to well, yeah, that, that's first and foremost. You just having a bunch of genes in there. I mean, that's great. I mean, it's, it's, in terms of breeding, it genetically it's powerful. But you know, the reason we do this is you know we enjoy it. We want the animals to be you know nice and healthy first, and then secondly, because, because we enjoy it. And then then afterwards come sales and you know financial considerations and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to produce animals that I enjoy. That I enjoy to look at. That I think are visually stunning animals. Um, that I enjoy in terms of like their size. If it's a specific locale, for example. So anyway. Orange Ghost Stripe I focus on for my simple recessive projects. Um, mm-hmm. For my dominant and co-dominant genes, I do a lot of phantom stuff. So I have, like, phantom platy tigers, uh, phantom super tigers, uh, things like that. So phantom really is one of my favorite co-dominant genes, with, with the super being a white snake, a leucistic snake. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of those combinations um, I'll be having this season, um, you know, obviously with good fortune. Um, all my females are doing everything right. They're cycling well, and it's going really well. So I'll have a lot of orange ghost stripes coming out, orange ghost stripe combos. I'll have a lot of uh, phantom combos coming out. 
and those are the two main projects I do focus on. I mean, don't get me wrong, I do have other jeans in my collection. I have Sun Tiger, you know, Motley, Albinos, and things like that. Um, but the two main ones that I'm really trying to line breed and focus on producing impressive combinations are Phantom combinations and Orange Ghost Stripe combinations, and not necessarily together, uh, because uh-huh. Phantom, and this kind of ties into the next part we're talking about, um, Phantom het Orange Ghost Stripes, and I say het because um, – this mutation that I'm going to refer to next is allelic. Um, it's a cow. So basically, um, a cow is a phantom head orange ghost stripe. So one allele from one parent is, is donated to the, um, to the offspring, being the phantom, and then one allele um, from a visual orange ghost stripe or a head orange ghost stripe is donated, and that results in an animal that's a phantom head OGS and results in a cow. The reason I explain it that way is because some people have trouble grasping this concept of something being allelic and others don't obviously but um, right so cows you know they're visually impressive animals you have an animal that starts out leucistic it gains its pigmentation as it gets older um there's a lot of variety in cows you have some cows that gain far more pigmentation at the same exact size as their you know their, their sibling um uh-huh. they have a lot of nice combinations coming out for cows uh now we could kind of jump into nerd uh nerd has so much content, so much quality to its collection. Um, and Kevin's worked really hard at that, and I've helped him with that um, as well, along with our, you know, other employees. And cows are one of the signature animals that he, that he does have. Um, uh-huh. He actually has, you know, golden child cows, golden child tiger cows, you know, tiger cows. Uh-huh. Um, we, we potentially will have, have cows that have platy in them. Um, the reason I say potentially, we actually produced um, a, a couple of clutches that did have some cows in there, and a lot of times you can't necessarily see the uh, the pigmentation until they um, until they get older. So basically, they're born leucistic snakes. They gain pigmentation as they get older, so it may be difficult to see if you know does this have tiger in it, does this have platy in it, until they have you know some considerable size, until they're you know a couple feet long, a few feet long. Um, so he does have a lot of the cows. Uh, we have in there a lot of cow, uh, cow combos. Cows are always really popular. Um, and they're kind of like quintessential retake. You have this, you know, this this nice-looking animal with some decent size to it. But that being said, cows are actually dwarves. Uh, cows usually don't exceed, you know, 12 feet, 13 feet. I've seen some get a bit bigger, but that's not particularly common. So uh, so he does have the cows in the collection, and um, I guess mm-hmm. I can go over a few other uh, things he has going on at Nerd. Um, I mean, this in and of itself could be honestly a whole show. But a lot of exciting projects he's had. He's produced, you know, we've produced in the over there Super Phantom. Um, yeah. Which it seems simple, just the homozygous version of the Phantom, right? The reason it was mm-hmm. exciting is because a lot of people didn't try it for a long time. Because the first time we produced the Phantoms over at Nerd, uh, the offspring weren't viable. And people thought, you know oh. what? The homozygous form of Phantom must be a, a fatal combination. They, did, they just don't do well. And, um, we were telling individuals it actually was because of an incubator issue. Um, we had uh, three clutches that were hatching simultaneously. We had a clutch up top, a clutch below, and then the super phantom clutch was in the middle. Usually we catch errors like this and we make sure it's a non-issue. But when you have um, babies hatching out, that brings up the temperature. And when you have um, a container in the center that's basically sandwiched between two hatching clutches, you're going to have this, you know, this significant spike in temperature. And um, that caused them to have issues, those, those neonates. 
and um, a lot of them didn't potentially didn't make it. Um, now this clutch here, the super panels we have currently, flourishing. Mm-hmm. They're excellent. Um, they're growing really, really well. Um, and they have a lot of interesting. I mean, um, on the Retic Nation and other other social media venues, um, I've posted pictures of them. You'll see this basically leucistic snake, and it'll have even lighter speckling on the side. So you'll have this white snake with white speckling on the sides and the backs. It's really it's a really interesting look. Um, so the super panther. Cool. Yeah, it's a really honestly, it's one of my favorites. I keep on looking at the animals there, and that's one of the that's one of the best and worst things about working at Nerd. Um, for my private collection, I'm like, you know what? I need to get this animal. I have to have this animal there. So you, um, even if you have, you know, a large collection, if you work on Nerd, I guarantee you'll get larger because he has so many, you know, cool, interesting <laughs> animals there. See, that is a problem. They, you are pretty much a sugar addict working at a candy store. I mean, <laughs> that's, exactly. I'm actually yeah, that is, that well. is I'm bad, pretty dude. proud of myself. Um, a lot of animals that I've wanted to get, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just hold it, hold my, I'll just kind of bite my tongue and I'll say, you know what, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to talk, you know, have them up this animal. I'm just not going to get it. Uh, there have been some that it can't resist. There's actually um, a pretty popular animal, the tiger calico, and Kevin does have quite a few calicos in his, um, in his collection right now. And uh, I obtained that animal for my collection. Um, so that's a pretty interesting one. And um, in terms of other projects that Nerd has, though, he's working a lot with, with jaguars. Um, so the jaguar mutation that we have currently, uh, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, the coloration is just phenomenal. The, the, the effect that it has on pattern is phenomenal. A lot, and what's really exciting, a lot of combinations haven't even been done. Um, like right now, for example, yeah. he has uh, platy sunfire jaguars. He has tiger platy uh, jaguars. He's had phantom jaguars in the past. And um, now with a lot of breedings that uh, we're doing this year, uh, so we're not, we don't really reveal all the details ahead of time. They, they have a, a saying at nerd. They said that nerd stands for never, ever reveal details. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that being said, uh, he has a lot of Jaguar combinations that, that we're going to produce that we're, we're really excited about. Um, and Phantom Jaguars, for example, those are one of the prettiest retics I've ever seen, period. Um, and then, you know, and obviously just like with, um, with any other um, type, of, type of mutation or animal, some mutations don't come out as well as you'd like. We produce some Sunfire Jags. Honestly, I wasn't particularly a big fan of them. But we're going to use those animals and plug them into other genes. Um, so the Jaguar project, I mean, that's something that's really cutting edge. And a lot of people don't have it in their collections. And uh, they say produce such dramatic examples. I mean, the epistasis that they have, so the effect that the genes have on one another to have, you know, the product, it's just really impressive. And sometimes it's, it's not what you expect. Um, so mm-hmm. jag, jaguars, very, very exciting. Um, and it's something unique to have in a collection. It's nice to have something where you can produce, you know, impressive-looking animals, and it's not going to be something that, you know, you, the next breeder that you speak to is going to happen, the next breeder, the next breeder, the next breeder. I mean, as of now, it's still, you know, relatively unique to have in a collection. Um there are some issues associated with jaguars, you know, minor issues in terms of, like, wobbles, for example, like you would see in um, a spider ball python or sometimes, like, in jaguar or carpets. I'm sure you're familiar jaguar with Jaguar carpets, yeah. Yeah. So they named that um, correctly. And just like with them, you have some very mild examples where you literally don't even realize that they have a wobble. And then you'll have more significant uh-huh. examples. Um, the hereditary aspect of that, it doesn't really seem to have a correlation. You could breed a low uh, wobble jag and it produce a, a whole spectrum of, of wobble. Um, but that being said, the great thing is, is that we've noticed that as the jags are getting older, a lot of them have uh, far more subtle uh, wobbles. 
So it, it, mm-hmm. it is getting a bit better in terms of, you know, the wobble diminishing as they get older. Obviously, um, if the animal's stressed out, you'll see more of a wobble. If the, if the animal just ate is digesting a meal, you'll see a bit more of a wobble. If it's a female that's gravid, you'll see more of a wobble. So I'm talking about the normal scenarios, it's, it's actually quite limited. Anyway, jaguars I'm really excited about. It's one of those genes that I keep on looking at, and um, I've really just been, you know, holding my hand back from the, from the cookie jar and not getting one yet. But uh, I probably need to pull mm-hmm. the trigger soon, though. Um, but anyway, um, um, a lot of other exciting projects. We produce some super golden cows over at Nerd. Uh, we're just it's extremely melanistic animal, um, even darker than golden child motleys. And a lot of people like golden child motleys because you just have this, you know, this big impressive snake, and it's just jet black. And a lot of people, you know, didn't can even imagine a snake darker than a motley golden child until we came up with the super golden childs. Um, it's to the point that you can't even see a lot of the facial features when you take pictures of them because they're so incredibly dark. Um, but those uh, those did really well. A lot of people were very happy with those, and, and I was really impressed by it. And it's tough to impress me with Reese because I see so many. Um, and then we have some pretty interesting, you know, combinations as well. We always have the nice Phantom combos. Um, so Phantom is always an exciting project, always has dramatic uh, results. Um, we had a super golden child, orange ghost stripes we produced. Everyone loves the orange ghost stripe, one of the most popular recessive projects. And now you mix it in with something that's new but very exciting, like the super golden child, and it just makes it that much better. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from the super phantoms and the jack combos, the super golden child, the OGS combos and the phantom combos, there's a lot going on. Um, I mean, even side projects that we have, uh, we have this um, – this uh, mutation is referred to as a citrus. So the actual mm-hmm. um, citrus by itself looks similar to a platinum. Um, not as pretty as platinum, but looks similar to it. And then once you mix it in with albino, for example, it causes this significant saturation in the albino where you'll see the sides just really saturated. It looks like you just went into Photoshop and you just plugged that saturation way up. Um, and we'll, we have uh, combinations of these animals that are really impressive. Um, for example, we have a citrus albino, a sunfire tiger motley platinums. That's, that's a mouthful, right? But um, mm-hmm. it's a lot of genes in one animal, and more importantly, it's a lot of genes that, that look visually impressive. Um, because I'm not really a big fan of when people put a ton of genes in an animal and then it, it doesn't look that it doesn't look that nice. It doesn't look that pretty. Uh, but when you put a lot of genes in an animal, so genetically it's powerful to use in your breeding plans. And then when you look at it, when you look at this animal in your enclosure, you're like, wow, that is a gorgeous animal. Um, so he really does, a, you know, we hone down on that a lot over there too. So yeah, lots of exciting projects and that's, um, that's literally only off the top of my head. There's so many other, uh, you know, strong <laughs> projects out there and, um, there's really no bad projects because like I said, the collection there, it's a good size collection. I've definitely known individuals that have bigger collections in terms of other companies, but the quality of the collection just really is on point. Um, I mean, every animal, you know, has a purpose there. Um, regardless, it would have a purpose, even if it was a normal. But in terms of breeding and, and genetics, it also has a purpose as well. So. Awesome. Are you getting to the point um, where you're putting so many genes into uh, retics that you kind of have to take a step back to really try to figure out what's in it? Are you seeing that more and more um, with combinations coming out? Or are there, does it depend on the genes that are involved? Yeah, it, I think um, it's good that you mentioned that last part. It depends on the genes that are involved because um, a lot of the, the reticulated python mutations, 
are pretty strong. That's the good thing. Because sometimes in other um, types of reptiles, you'll have mutations that are so similar to one another. And now when you mix it up, you don't know what mutation it exactly has in this animal since you were mixing things that are so, so similar. And usually that's not the case with reticulated pythons by and large. Um, so usually, even if you have a decent amount of genes, it's not too tough to really tell what's in there. But there are exceptions. Uh, for example, a, a lot of golden child mutations. Uh, golden child is an amazing mutation. It does a lot of impressive things. Um, since golden child does seem to usually cause a reduction in pattern, when you mix it with other things, say, for example, if you have, you know, a golden child phantom, there isn't going to be much pattern in that animal, but you will see a certain hue associated with it. So the golden child um, phantom will have, like, this, like, rusty, saturated type look to them. Um, and then you'll have, you know, other genes on that. You'll have golden child phantom tigers. You'll have golden child phantom tiger platinums, which they actually call beast. Uh, that's what the, the, the abbreviation that they usually, well, not abbreviation, that's the nickname they usually have for it. So with, I guess to answer your question, not to the extent that you'll see in some other, um, some other reptiles, like um, some other snakes, for example, whether it be BPs or anything else, uh, ball pythons or anything else, but it does happen, yes, especially depending on which genes you're adding in if you're adding in like a golden child. Okay. Uh, are you working with, well, my absolute favorite retic morph is the Mochachina. Are you do, are you Mochinos. guys working with that? Yeah. Oh, Mochinos. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No worries. Uh, yeah, we definitely work with Mochinos. Um, so Mochinos is another one that's allelic. So it's basically a head mocha and a head albino. And then it results okay. in okay. this, um, basically like key positive looking animal. Um, you know, the Mochinos. Yes, we, we are definitely working with that. Um, I try my best. It's tough for me because I'm, I get really excited about this project and I'm like, oh, I, I want to tell them everything about it, all these cool things we're doing with it. But that's that. part of it. It's a surprise, right? But yeah, we're that, definitely yep. working with our Mochino combos. We're putting them to a lot of really interesting animals, um, both so we could get some immediate effects of, you know, some impressive animals, you know, coming out this season. And also, just like always, we're thinking long term. So we're producing some Mochino combos that are really valuable heads uh, that right. we'll be raising up. Um, but, yeah, we definitely are working with Mochino. Um, it is one of the signature animals that we do work with, and we're really excited about it. But Mochinos are excellent. I mean, and now what's great is that they're at a price point now where people could afford them as pets um, mm-hmm. and, you know, in their, in their regular collections, not just, you know, breeders and people that have, like, these unique collections. So it's at a price point now where a lot of people could bring it into their collections. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as far as any morph of python goes, I mean, that's pretty much the creme de la creme, in my opinion. You know, I mean, it's just it doesn't get much better than that. Um, I did see, I forget where this was, um, but I, I saw it on Facebook. Somebody had a caramel, and it was very similar looking. Do you do you know anything about that? Is that yeah, so the, so the, the caramels the blondes, they, they do look, um, honestly, to me, since I look at the retics all the time, they, they look very different, but I could definitely see how someone could see them looking similar. Um, okay. And those actually are allelic as as well, so because they'll um, they'll pair and make basically the, the head caramels and head albinos, and uh, they'll make like the orange glows, for example. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's similar uh, to a certain extent, um, because you could have certain orange glows, you know, right next to a mochino, and you'll have this one allelic animal being the mochino and this other allelic animal being the orange glow. And they could look similar, especially if you're not actually breeding the retics. Um, mm-hmm. We don't work too much with that. Um, 
but yes, it is out there. We prefer working with the Mochino, but honestly, that gene's excellent. I know some breeders out there that they're producing some some of the orange glow combos, or even just like a straight blonde uh, caramel uh, combos, and really, really impressive. Really good stuff. Cool. Very awesome. Cool. So, Josh, we got some last closing questions for you, and sure. these are the interesting ones. And that is, um, if you could work with any species without limitations of money or law or size, whatever, what would it be and why? Uh, for me, it would definitely be, without a doubt, um, Burmese pythons. I've always been a huge fan of Burmese pythons. Uh, the first mm-hmm. large um, python I ever uh, had in my collection was a Burmese python. A few months later, I wanted to get a reticulated python. And those two have always been you know, very special um, uh, pythons to me, very special reptiles in general. Um, so obviously with regulations that were put in place for these animals is no longer allowed across state lines. I live in a very small state, New Hampshire. So I had mm-hmm. to unfortunately part with a lot of my animals uh, prior to the ban being implemented. Uh, but if this, you know, magically somehow, and hopefully this is true one day, that this regulation is no longer in place, I'd love mm-hmm. to, you know, re-expand my collection and lion breed some of my favorite combinations. I do still work with species, uh, just not nearly to the extent that I did previously. Uh, just, you know, thinking practically. A lot of my animals I have now are just my pets, are breeders that I bred previously, and now it doesn't really make sense for me to breed them, so I just have them as my pets. So, but, yeah, definitely cool. Burmese pythons first. And then there's cool. other species as well. Um, so I, I started out basically with, with lizards. That was my foundation. Uh, I grew mm-hmm. up around them. And then, um, when I was around 12, 13, pretty much, you know, for the next 20 years, 90% of my collection was, you know, with snakes. And, uh, probably about a year ago, I started kind of, uh, like re- rekindling my, my foundation. I started getting, you know, a bit more lizards. Um, mm-hmm. and now I, I do have a lot of tegus. I'm actually breeding indoors and brewmating, which I'm, I'm pretty interested in. Uh, that's a really interesting project for me. And then um, this goes back to, you know, regulations and things like that, the Gila monsters. Uh, so those are the two lizards I'm oh. working with. Well, I would like to work with at least Tegus. I am working with, obviously. Uh, the, the restrictions are, you know, quite lenient, at least currently. And then secondly, um, ones that are restricted that I would like to, to work with more are definitely the Gila monsters. They're just such interesting animals. Um I would just really love to work with them more if the regulations were more lenient. So, but yeah, definitely the heel monsters, their adaptations are just so interesting. Their personalities, their physiology, mm-hmm. uh, their behavioral traits are so interesting. And then also to also beneficial to people. I mean, the medicinal effects of the research associated with their, um, with the peptides that they use to jumpstart their pancreas, they actually utilize for diabetes research of people. Um, they're just really interesting animals in so many ways. So, um, yeah, anyway, so Burmese pythons in terms of restricted animals that I would like um, to work with with no restrictions, and then Gila monsters in, you know, in an ideal world if I could have no restrictions. Gila monsters are on my list. I, I used to work with them. If I can just get these stupid Nile monitors out of my house, then then I might be in trouble with some <laughs> Gila monsters. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're, they're a great species. I get to work with a few in there. Um, I mean, he has, you know, we have an impressive collection there, but we have a rather small colony of them. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're amazing. I mean, honestly, I could sit here and I could talk about adaptations and the physiology and the behavior and, and everything about healers for, for hours. I just, I've done a lot of research on them and extremely interested on in them. 
Oh, shit. Well, there we go. We got another episode. You've, like, turned out, like, four or five potential episodes with you just, like, during the course of the show. So we have to thank you for that in, like, the next coming years. No worries. But um, the next thing would be if you could go field herping anywhere on the planet, where would you want to go and what would you be hoping to find? All righty. Anywhere on the planet, probably – Australia. I know it's a really broad answer. That's an entire continent, right? Um, no, that's so, the normal answer. We give that answer yeah. all the time. So, so yeah, well, especially with carpet pythons, you know, I would, I would assume that it'll be a very popular destination. Um, yeah, no, I mean, Australia for me, it's just a perfect mix because they have some of the most interesting snake species and, um, you know, some of my foundations and lizards and I've been getting back to lizards over the, uh, the last couple of years. Um, uh, so they have mm. really interesting lizard species as well. Um, I really like a lot of the dwarf monitors, so it's kind of opposite sides of the spectrum. I like working with really big snakes, and I like working with really small monitors also. Um, but if I could field herp there and just, they have so many interesting species of dwarf monitor. If I could just go there for like an entire summer and just, you know, go all over the continent, in addition to looking mm-hmm. at all their interesting snake species, you know, they're non-venomous, like their carpet pythons and all the different locales. And I've, I've even heard, you know, going over there, and just seeing the variety that's there, obviously, is actually so, so impressive, uh, as opposed yeah. to the collections that we have access to here. Um, mm-hmm. But then, in addition to that, you know, even some of their venomous animals are extremely interesting, and their venomous snakes. And then when you go over to the to the other, you know, the other side of it, lizards, uh, in terms of reptiles, so interesting. They're, they're large monitors, like their they're lace monitors, and especially their bell phase lace are aesthetically very interesting. And then their dwarf monitors. But I would probably focus in on the dwarf monitors for majority of my trip and knowing me, I'd probably extend my trip to from a two month trip to like a six month trip. And I just <laughs> stay there for a really long time. <laughs> I actually had a niece that, uh, she went there. My, my niece, uh, she graduated a couple of years back uh, from high school. And then the present that my sister gave her was go to go to Australia. And, um, she's really into animals too. So she actually went to, you know, the Melbourne zoo and the Australia zoo and, she had a really good time over there, and uh, I was I was really happy for her, and simultaneously really jealous because I wanted to go really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that must be an amazing experience, and hopefully, you know, soon I can get to go there. I think for most herpers, that's kind of a prime destination, like you were saying before. Yeah, I think everybody's going to have to make a trip at some point there. Yeah, but definitely. Awesome. So, if uh, somebody wanted to get in touch with you. Talk retics, uh, check out your collection. How would they go about doing that? Yeah, uh, so I actually have um, a website. It's uh, my initials, so JJO Reptiles. So it's going to be JJO, my initials, then reptiles, um, dot com. So if you go to JJO Reptiles dot com, I have some of my animals on there. Um, in the past, I've usually sold animals at like, local shows and things like that in the area, but uh, this upcoming season, I'm going to have a lot of my stuff posted online. Um, so they could contact me through my site. It has my email listed on the site. It's just um, uh, sales or info at jglreptiles.com. And then also I'm on Facebook, of course, on social media, and I post a lot of my animals that I have available. Um, so if they search just JGO Reptiles, so it'll come up, and they'll see my animals and see some of my collection, you know, from, you know, the reticulated pythons and ball pythons to a lot of my lizards that I have. Um, so, yeah, I try to update it pretty regularly and put some interesting stuff on there. So I think they would enjoy that, a lot of people. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. Man, here we are. It's, uh, yeah, 
11.30. So I told you. It's close closing time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. looking. I was like, I don't know if it's going to last two hours. and actually went beyond that. It was fun. A lot of fun. Yeah. Um, it's okay. usually how it goes. There's something yeah. else I wanted to add before we, we wrap up. Um, sure. I, I really um, I feel pretty passionate about that, uh, about this, rather. USR, it's really important mm-hmm. that we, um, in my opinion, back up this um, this organization. They're really fighting for our rights. And I know sometimes it's easy for us to get distracted, you know, in our own, you know, breeding plans and things we have going on in our facilities or collections. And sometimes we'll have skirmishes with one another. But we have to, we have to remember that we have this bigger, you know, fight, so to speak, a fight for our rights as uh, reptile keepers. And um, they're fighting for our rights to, you know, not just have breeding animals, but to have our pets. And they, they, they deserve our support. So, um, yeah, so Google or go onto their website and um, mm. you could – you could, you could sign up for a membership, and you could make donations. You could find out, you know, up-to-date information. But supporting USR is extremely important. So, in uh, my opinion, I think most people should really consider it. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. We believe that as well. We, uh, we are big supporters Great. of USR. So. Excellent. Excellent. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, so, hopefully uh, you have uh, – here's a question. Will you, will you be at Tinley? We'd be guys coming out to Tinley, either you yourself or Nerd or I may be visiting Tinley. We have a lot of stuff going on, so it's really tough for us to take a break and go over and actually vend there. But Kevin okay, and I right. have been talking about it and potentially at future shows we will be returning to vend there. We haven't vended there okay, in quite nice. some time. Uh but him uh-huh. and I have been talking about it. And um not this show but it's really not practical. Uh but the right. following show we're strongly considering it. And if we do we're gonna be announcing it. Um, we'll announce it pretty much all over the place on social media, our website, so people know ahead of time. Okay, cool. Nice. Well, when you get some of those uh, new uh, retic, uh, you know, uh, combinations and more popping out, uh, you're always welcome back. Uh, you know, like Owen said, we got Gila Monsters and <laughs> all kinds of shows. That, you know, we get tons of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Great. But, it's really uh, interesting. It's one of those things you just talk about for hours and hours and hours and just not, not get bored of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just uh, thanks for coming on and uh, spending some time with us, man. Oh, you're welcome. It. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Uh, absolutely. All right. All right, guys. Uh, you have a great night, have guys. Have a good one. You All too. Right, thank you. Bye-bye. Cool, man. Are you ready to get some retics, Owen, or what? I would only – I'm going to tell you right now. I would only ever get a cow, and I'm not going to spend seven thousand dollars. So, <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> so, uh, okay, all right. I would only ever buy. I would, here's the thing. So you like, like the cow? You huh? You're you're into the I cow, like the, dude. I liked I liked the cow when we were at Nerd because it's an all white snake. That all of a sudden, as it grows, it looks like somebody like flicked like paint brushes at it and just gets these little different colored speckles all over it. It's yeah. Awesome. But yeah. I am not when, – when, right now there's $7,000, and there are so many more <laughs> snakes on my – if I were to have an extra $7,000, that would pretty much kill half of my I need this reptile list. So yeah. I will wait. It's not okay. major. I can wait. So yeah. Okay. Awesome. I just got to convince you – I just got to convince you or Matt that cows is a great retic project, and then I'm set. Then I don't got to wait. I just got to wait for you guys to do it. So, yeah, isn't that isn't that awesome how we like? <laughs> yeah, I isn't mean, that we like talk each other into projects so that we know that we we people. have them close. Horrible, <laughs> yeah, 
horrible to each other. It's like, yeah. I'm thinking about getting this. And we're just like, do it. Why? Yeah. I've got to buy it. I've got to wait for you to make it. Well, yeah. It's kind of jerkish. But, yeah. So, it's I understand. Yeah. You know. That's that's cool. All right. Um, so, let's see. Next week, we have Matt Minnetola from Philly Hurt. Speak of the devil. Yeah. Coming on to talk with us. Man, he's had an incredible season. Uh, he's, Re-picks. you know, this, Condros, Condros, Borneos, ball um, pythons, and bowers, <laughs> and yeah. I mean, I think all of a sudden he's like drowning in babies, and I'm desperate trying to scratch up enough to fill a table. Yeah, the hell. Yeah, he's got it dialed in, man. Um, some awesome stuff. Uh, I personally had the uh, uh, experience. Obviously, we're going to talk about his Borneo stuff. In particular, is mm-hmm. ocelot stuff. Um, you know, uh, we've we've had Matt on the show a few times, uh, and I know it's difficult to talk about uh, Borneo genetics, um, but uh, hopefully he has We're some. Uh, <laughs> he has some more insight uh, from this past season that uh, that uh, he had. Um, obviously, we'll hit on some Condro talk, and uh, you know, because uh, Matt was bitten by the Condro bug. Um, maybe what, like two years back, you know, <laughs> two years back, but it went from like, Hey guys, I got a conjured. Hey guys, this is my 13th. And we're like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That so, uh, bit him and then didn't let go. We'll see how he, uh, how he's doing with his, uh, with the clutch he hatched out and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah. and of course, uh, the retex, he, he also produced them. He, he has some really, uh, really cool, really pretty uh, ones. And yeah, yeah. Uh, <sighs> too much, too much overexposure to retics. You're you're trying to get me to justify <laughs> your purchasing of giant ass snakes. So I mean, <laughs> no, I mean when it comes to retics, I, I I'm telling you, man, I really think that uh, they're hard to beat, man. They're beautiful, beautiful animals. They are not for everybody, know. you know, not for no. everybody. And I wouldn't have them like a huge collection of them, but uh, I can definitely appreciate them. It's a so, big ass room, which you <laughs> should have soon. Your three yes. different rooms. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, so Matt will be with us next week, and then the week after that, we will be our five year anniversary show. <gasps> and Holy shit. Yeah, we got some some cool things lined up. We might have some I visits. To, from... I got a bone to pick with Mr. Stone. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. Yeah. Already. We have, we'll have some cool, uh, you know, clips and visits and uh, all kinds of stuff. So that should be a fun show, I think, for sure. So Rob Stone is going to be, I guess, basically hosting, hosting, He's hosting. the show. Yeah. And we're going to be the guests. Is... <laughs> so why does this feel like it's going to be some sort of like, Roasting thing. <laughs> I mean, it's the roasting of Eric and Owen on Morelia by Well, yeah, because Radio. apparently, <laughs> apparently he's like, because first off, Rob, if, if I could sit anybody down and be like, and be like, so give me the gist of episode two eighty, he would probably like regurgitate it all, as well as probably do spot on impressions of the both of us. But yeah, it's like. Now we've let him loose, and he's going through the entire back catalog, which, yes, 
people. There's a back catalog. You can listen to past episodes. Um, and digging up shit I said like five years ago. <laughs> yeah, I know. And well, I'm, we said... I'm totally worried about this shit. <laughs> I... Uh, if I know, if I had known half the crap I've said over the years could be dragged back and used against me, I would watch my language and I would watch what I said a lot better. All right. Yeah. So. Uh, well, we've grown and we've learned a lot over the years. We it, never. We're, no, we're doing. Never, no. We never claimed to be experts of anything. So. Uh, he plays. You know, he plays one clip from that Blake show, and I'll kill him. <laughs> I'll kill him. Yeah. Um. Well, we definitely have to hit on that. Come on, man. No, we don't. No, we don't. That's no. A, uh, no. That's a winner. No, no. no. That episode uh, does not exist in my mind, all right? <laughs> we deleted it. Yeah. I want a redo. Uh, I swear to God, I need you to schedule a redo for that. I need uh, some redemption. Uh, I'm done. Okay, <laughs> when when I go on vacation, I'll I'll, I'll schedule no, Blake. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, you need no, you screwed uh, me last time because you were gone. These be an episode that you're here for. Uh, God. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it should be cool. We'll, uh, I, you know, Rob never ceases to amaze me, man. I mean, the dude is like a walking encyclopedia of herpetoculture. Terrified. I terrified mean, of what he's going to I do. I can't mention <laughs> anything about herpetoculture or reptiles. You know, whether it's Laws, localities, species, uh, you know, I mean, whatever. It's just like, boom, he, he, he's like, you know, oh, yeah, I know about that one. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's like, holy shit, man. Very impressive. Yeah. Um, and he will be with us uh, in Tinley Park. So uh, oh, that should oh, be a good. blast. Oh, good. So if he pisses me off enough at the five-year show, I can exact revenge at Tinley Park. Okay. Sure you can, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what you choose. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, All right. So yeah, so that's what we got coming up. Uh, should be some cool stuff. We uh, we'll be getting the calendar stuff together uh, real soon. Um, yep. Yep. I'm uh, talking with Casey about uh, you know he's uh, got some prices and a faster turnaround in time and stuff. So we'll get that together probably over the next week. Nice. I've been just so swamped with moving. Oh my God. It's insane. I never will do it again. <laughs> I'm going to die. It's like you just turn the door and be like, I'm dying in this house. You understand yes. that, right? So <laughs> if you haven't done that, I want you to do it to her like tomorrow. and be like, tell me what she says. Okay. Yeah. Or just flat out turn to her. I'm dying in this house, okay? So it's um, so I mean, you you're moving the snakes this week and or tomorrow or something like that, correct? Yeah, tomorrow. So I I took the babies over cool. there. Um, okay. So I have them set up in uh, in the middle room, like one of the spare bedrooms, uh, while mm-hmm, I get mm-hmm. the uh, uh, what do you call Snake it together? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, so Fun. I'm already uh, pretty excited because it's like. Even the small room that I that I'm staging them in is bigger than the room I have now, so it's kind of like, woohoo, you know, <laughs> so much. This is awesome. Activities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's like the best thing ever. <laughs> Oops. All right. Well, uh, whatever. Oh. Uh, so, so yeah. Enough. So 
we need to stop. We need to end this show. So. Yeah. So that's what uh, that's what I got going on. But um, yeah, it's been it's been crazy couple of months for me personally. Mm-hmm. So if I if if you tried to contact me and I haven't gotten back to you, I apologize. Uh, you know, but uh, that's pretty much what has absorbed. Uh, 80% of my time is, is this whole move thing, but uh, hopefully we'll be back on track real soon. Um, let's see. So uh, for us, uh, our website, moreliapythonradio.com, uh, you can check out, uh, you know, um, everything you want to know about Morelia um, is, is pretty much there. It points you in the direction of, uh, you know, anything that um, – you know, you could possibly, uh, it's, it's like the hub of Morelia is what I kind of call it. So go there, check it out. And then it'll point you in direction, um, of people or, um, you know, Facebook pages or websites or whatever, um, past guests, all that kind of stuff. If you want to get in contact with us, uh, personally, send us a question or a comment or a show idea. You can send it to info at moreliapythonradio.com. Uh, we're on Facebook. Twitter um, at Morelia Python Radio. You can check out our page. Um, we try to share, um, you know, stuff on there as the show goes on, and um, mm-hmm. you know, from the guests and uh, different pictures and such. Uh, we also do a chat, um, Morelia Python Radio chat that goes on during the show. If you're interested in, uh, you know, getting on in, in that, either message me or Owen on Facebook, and uh, we'll get you in there pretty simple to add you in um so yeah if you want to listen to the show best way is itunes or whatever podcast app you use subscribe to it uh and uh i can pretty much promise you that every wednesday you will have a show in your inbox um (laughs) (laughs) Uh, under penalty of death (laughs) i mean it will be God. <laughs> exactly. I think if we ever, uh, and here's the thing is every time we have like a technical difficulty and we have to cancel the show, it's like practical riots that we have yeah. to deal with on Wednesday because there's Cables not Cables are flipping. I mean, Jesus Christ, the amount of text messages we get when it's like, where's the show? Like, we, we had some technical difficulty. We're sorry. It's, yeah. Yeah. So. So, uh, so yeah. So we will also, uh, which I'm sure both Owen and I will, mentioned this multiple times but uh we'll be at tinley park um yo uh you can check us out though we'll be in the infamous carpet row um and uh if you want to come up hang out with us talk to us feel free introduce yourself to us you know what i mean uh i think me and you are pretty uh fairly uh friendly people um well you are but um (laughs) Well, it's funny because people at Tinley Park can walk it up to us, and they recognize us by voice, yeah. which is the weirdest shit I've ever had to deal with in my entire life. Where it's like, yeah. you sound familiar. And I'm like, do I? So it's, <laughs> and, you know, they notice you when you come walking around the corner and have to set up your step stool to get, you know, up to the over the table. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah. This this year I'll be riding on Rob Stone's shoulders, so I'll be good. There you go. <laughs> Teamwork. My technical support. Um, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, we'll be at Tinley Park. Um, and as far as myself, E.B. Morelia, 
can check out my website, ebmorelli.com, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, all those different uh, social media spots. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me uh, about something that I have going on, eric at ebmorelli.com. Um, and as soon as I get settled, I'll get some pictures of the citrus tiger head albino stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I know some people yeah. are chomping at the bit for that stuff. So, uh, Ahem. hopefully yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll get that going right before Tinley and, uh, yeah, they're pretty cool. They're turning out really, really nice. So I'm really, uh, happy with how it's going. Yeah. So that's all I got. Uh, I'm holding what? your zebra jack head albino ransom for, you know, pictures of the tiger's head albino. You know that, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> you yeah. you don't get him back, you know, even though he's evil and I want him to go back to you. I hate that <laughs> thing. Anyway, yeah. bit me like four times on the fingers. I'm like, why is everything from Eric so mean? So to anyway, you. <laughs> um, I, I, do you, like, do you have like a picture of me and you smack them with it? I mean, like, how are they just evil yeah. towards me? Uh-huh. <laughs> I'll figure that out later. Yeah. But anyway, um, what I got going on. You can go to rogue-reptiles.com. Check that out. We're in the middle of updates on everything on rogue-reptiles. So stay tuned. There'll be all new bios and pictures of breeders, as well as lineage information for all 2016 clutches, as well as we're going to completely redo the lineage page so it'll be easier to navigate to find uh, babies' uh, lineage from whatever year you purchased. Uh, all the animals that we currently have for sale are up there. Keep an eye out for anything uh, high contrast. Queensland, they'll be as they start to eat. Uh, that clutch has been a little bit slow, so if you are interested, uh, drop me a line and we'll let you know when things are ready. Uh, as far as shows, the next show I have is the Tinley Park show in Chicago, but Rogue Reptiles will also be represented at the Hamburg Reptile Show that same Saturday, which is October 15th, um, I just won't be there. So if you want an animal and you cannot attend Tinley but will be attending Hamburg, I can have it delivered to Hamburg as well. That's all I got. So what we will say is thank you all for tuning in, and we're going to catch everybody here next week for some more Morelia Python radio. Good night.